you know as well as I do that this is what I do for a living. This is all that I do. And can't nobody tell I ain't, I ain't the best in the damn world. Don't even say nothing. Don't say nothing. Sit here and tell me to work within the system. You ain't the one sitting on your ass in the house like I am. But if, it's that, if that's what it takes to make you or the World Wrestling Federation happy, hell, I feel like Cool Hand Luke. I'll work within your stupid little system. That's all these people ask. I appreciate the fact that you and the World Wrestling Federation care. And I also appreciate the fact that, hell, you can kiss my ass. Welcome everyone to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. My name is Rory McNamara. Thank you for joining us. Today we are going back in the time machine to September 97 to look at the second half of WWF programming, which is Volume 2, Part 2. If you've been with us on Volume 2, Part 1, you would have heard us discuss the Grand Zero pay-per-view and the first two weeks of WWF programming. Also for you this month, we've got Volume 1, which is our WCW show, for Brawl, the main focus there and Volume 3 ECW, their live As Good As It Gets event. This is Volume 2, Part 2, the second half of September 1997 for the WWF. Dan Welling is my guest today. Dan, how are we? Very good, thank you, Rory. Uh, nice to be back on the show. Always After a pleasure, my man. brief excursion in Volume 1. <laughs> I don't know why I wasn't invited to Volume 1, but hey-ho. Yeah, I'll, 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 put, I'll put a word in for you, okay, I'm... Uh, the powers that be will be listening closely to this one. Uh, they won't get away with it, quite frankly. <laughs> the first thing they do when we finish recording. <laughs> we, we, we are here now, so let's, for the next two hours, let, let's, let's make hay while the sun shines. And we're here to mainly talk about the one-night-only pay-per-view, which took place on September the 20th here in Birmingham, England, my hometown. Dan, uh, run us through the results, if you would, my man. No problem. So, in the opening contest, Hunter Hearst Helmsley defeated Dude Love. Tiger Ali Singh defeated Leaf Cassidy. The Headbangers defeated Los Bariquas to retain the WWF Tag Team Championship. The Patriot defeated Flash Funk. The Legion of Doom defeated the Godwins. Vader defeated Owen Hart. Bret Hart retained his WWF title with a disqualica- disqualification victory against The Undertaker. And Shawn Michaels won the U- WWF European title by defeating the British Bulldog via referee stoppage. Dan, what did you think of this show? Uh, I honestly don't know. <laughs> it, I've watched it a few days ago now, and I think it, like there's some very great in-ring action on this show. And for a three-hour card, the undercard actually kind of held up a lot better than it has for 
couple of shows and obviously the Grand Zero pay-per-view that the Fed had in two weeks ago. But I, there's something not quite right with it. I, I can't put my finger on exactly why and what it is, but I came out of the show not exactly thrilled. Maybe that's because of the finish of the, of the main event, but again, well, I'll, I'll hopefully have some more concurrent thoughts for you once we've gone to the end of the wrap-up show. Um, but yeah, still not quite sure where I stand on this show just now. Let's try and get this somewhere by the time we uh, by the time we finish talking about it. But yes, I do see what you mean. This one blew very hot and cold. In my opinion, it actually took a long time to get going. And for a lot of the talents, this did come across to me like a B-stroke C-level house show. People who, in some cases, I would expect better from seem to be phoning this one in, which disappointed me. And as you mentioned there, the very end of this event, I think, will be the thing which we talk about whenever this whenever this event gets brought back up in discussions again in the future. It's certainly memorable. Whether it's how, how, whether it's how I would have done things or not is another issue. Yes, this was three hours that felt like three hours. But even when the in-ring action did dip, and it really did, in my view, there was enough going on to make this make this feel like something slightly different. Maybe it was the fact it was taking place in the UK, the fact that the crowd went into business for themselves very often. Even the fact that it took place on a Saturday night when we're so used, especially over here, staying up till 3am to have to watch events. All of those things helped to create something which did feel a bit different, even though as an event in its own right, it might just have had more bad than good. But... uh, We'll roll through this and see how we feel as we go through match by match. We open with the Sky Box Office logo. That takes me back. This event is absolutely not a boxing event. It really is not. This is the sixth pay-per-view on Sky Box Office since they started doing these shows about two and a half years ago over here, I think. The first one, which is not a boxing event. Definitely not. Because we open with a black and white video package on the life and times of David Smith, as narrated by Jim Ross. We, of course, get footage of the SummerSlam 1992 main event and also hear about when he won the European title in May of this year. It was actually March, but, you know. He might be a rogue in certain parts of the world, but he is here today to defend his country and a young boy's dream. We cut to the arena and Vince introduces us in his full-on welcome everyone. He does, it, he does it much better than I do. Welcome everybody, Hedery and he, JR and the King are on commentary. Lawler will drop UK slang, or as he calls it, King's English throughout the show. But if you are regular listeners to our podcast, none of it will be too much of a surprise. Give us a, sock, give us a snog. Sonny is very much included in that. We get a pan of the crowd, and they do look quite young. It's uh, 11,000 mooted, which I've been to the NEC, is their full capacity, and it certainly does look like it. We haven't got much of a set here, unfortunately. We've just got a lot of scaffolding with a video screen put up in the middle of it. Plus, we also have two beef eaters flanking the ramp, which, of course, they're ten a, they are ten a penny in Birmingham, so we can afford to have two of them at the events. Ah, dear. You've got to love the stereotypes, have you not? Uh, here comes Hunter herself. I should just one more thing as well. The picture quality. It is that weird NTSC PAL hybrid you get when American broadcasting crews film stuff over here. Perfectly watchable. The picture doesn't cut out at any point, but you can tell that uh, it's a... Uh, a film crew who've been flown in. One of those things you only really watch for if you're a bit of a geek, like I am. Anyway, sorry, Hunter. <laughs> just come on down to ringside. You've got to stop me. You've got to cut me off here. Vince tells us that our opening match features Owen Hart, but he is wrong. Because the dude has a word backstage. 
he does his own British accent, but it's the old stereotypical received pronunciation one. I was desperate for him to have a go at a Brummie one. If Mick Foley had said, all right, Bab, during this interview, <laughs> then I would have given this show 10 out of 10 instantly and I would have stopped this review. There would have been nowhere else but down after that. But Vince does like the accent anyway. So our opening match is Dude Love taking on Hunter Helms. So here we go. We get a headlock to start and Dude gets the upper hand. Elbows and strikes as the crowd cool a little after their initial enthusiasm. Mick shucks and jives and hits a clothesline. Helmsley goes outside and Dude slugs him on the apron. The crowd starts to clap along with Dude, then he goes to work on the arm. Nothing mega exciting so far, but all certainly competent. Hunter back with punches and the crowd bite with some booze. The Dude actually runs over a drop toe hold. I'm not sure I've ever seen that move before, and he puts on one of his own. Mick grinds the leg into, of all things, an Indian deathlock. Whip to the buckle, then we get a ten punch in the corner. Tree of Woe. He preps sweet shin music, but Hunter bails. Foley very slowly runs after him, but China levels him with a clothesline. Back in, Helmsley with punches as the crowd rally the dude. Hunter, though, hits the dreaded knee of Doom and gets a two count, followed by a McDonald's stretch. He uses the rope and Mike Kyoto, the referee, kicks him off. Triple H remonstrates, then Kyoto actually shoves him over. The crowd really liked that one. Mick gets two off a face plant, then Hunter hits a neck breaker. It goes for the pedigree, but it's blocked by a slingshot to the buckle. We then get more shots in the buckle. Uh, nine count of them this time. Dude with a rather slow clothesline, then he eats a boot. Uh, Hunter goes for a superplex, but Dude arm drags him off, and then he does hit his sweet shin music. Double arm DDT, but China puts Helmsley's foot on the ropes. Then rather suddenly, they both stand up, Helmsley with a pedigree, and I'll do that for a three crown. Done. Uh, this was just a decent let opener, really. I think it was nice to see that the crowd were invested in dudes. Um, the, um, and I thought that it was nice to see Mick Foley actually bringing out, you know, proper wrestling moves as well. As, you know, I know that he has got the capacity to do it, and, and we've seen some of it before with, with Jack in WCW, but, you know, with Mankind and in Cactus Jack in ECW, you just don't really see him have that technical kind of style that dude persona generally tends to do. So it was nice to see him bring out the stuff that you mentioned there, that the engine of death locks, the, the top rope arm drag, um, you know, the working of the arm. So that was nice to see. Um, but it, I don't know. I think uh, I've read some reviews online and it's saying this is like a really great opening match. And I thought, yeah, it was it was fine. It was a you know decent opener, but I don't think it was anything special than that. It was definitely below some of the matches that Foley and um, Paul Levesque come to her Selmsy have had before as Mankind. So, yeah, yeah, it was fine. Good opener, but nothing special for me. Yeah. Fine, nice, okay. But that's the word you have to use for this one. I agree with you. I think seeing Mick as dude love bust out a few uh, wrestling holes, um, some quite intricate arm locks, an Indian death lock and stuff like that, it shows that this guy, as I said, he does have the fundamentals down, but obviously given what his characters are, and as we'll see a bit later on, a certain Mr. C. Jack Esquire, he doesn't really get the opportunity to show those skills very often, and I'm always impressed when he does. It didn't really go anywhere in the context of the match. In its own right, it did feel a little bit shoehorned, but it was all... I was, I was certainly very impressed by it. It didn't really play into the context of the match to any great degree. It was there to give us something to do to get us up to about 12, 13 minutes. But enjoyable enough. 
Helmsley, in these sort of matches, he's got so little. And I shudder to think where he would be if China was not there by his side, let alone his obviously friendship with Michaels. But China does so much work for him to help get him heat. I think he'd be virtually nothing without it. His style is just so dull. Every match he seems to work, it's the same laborious... I want to be Harley Race, knee drop, knee drop stuff. It's archaic in 1990s. I'm not saying he needs to go out there and bust out super duper mega splashes or anything like that, but please, mate, you've just got to mix it up every so often. And I thought the finish here was almost too out of nowhere. They jumped ahead a couple of a couple of steps in the story. China puts uh, Helmsley's foot on the rope, then immediately both guys stand up so Helmsley can hit the pedigree. That was a bit sudden. It needed a decent transition. But yeah, there was some fairly decent action here, mainly carried by the dude. If you're going to put the heel over in an opener, at least give the fans something to enjoy. Dude got the crowd into it, so nothing to write home about, but nothing to really complain about, Helmsley aside. We hear from some fans outside as to who's going to win the big match today. They're pretty split between David Boy and the Heartbreak Kid. Sadly, we don't get any SummerSlam 92 throwbacks by somebody saying, the British Bulldog is going to win, whether he wants to or not. What is that What is that kid doing? Five years ago, he's got to be about what? 15, 16 these days? I really hope he was at least in attendance. I, just, I still don't think even now that guy knows how legendary he is. Oh, I've not seen that. That's fucking brilliant. absolutely fantastic. It's right at the very. If you get hold, get hold of the tape, it's right at the beginning of SummerSlam 1992. It's, I think it's about nine or ten wearing a backwards baseball cap. He's there. Oh, a, he's supporting Dave Boy, and B, he busts kayfabe right from the start, whether he wants to or not. It's fantastic. Oh. You've got to try and check it out. Uh, well, right, back to the hero now. Here's here's Sonny. Here's Jim Ross telling us that she could be a Spice Girl. That'll do, Jim. That'll do. She introduces our next match, which means Lee Cassidy gets an intro. He just gets some generic rock music, though. He's against Tiger Ali Singh. He has the nerve to slap hands with the crowds, including somebody holding a Meltzer is God sign. No, Tiger, that's not going to work. He calls himself a proud Asian Canadian, and he gets booed for it. He is the true messiah. He's going to set the, worst, he's going to set the wrestling world on fire, Oh, and stay drug-free. How the hell else am I going to get through this? Anyway, leave Cassidy against Tiger Ali Singh. Oh, wonderful. Cassidy in with punches, and then Singh kicks him in the corner. Singh with some rubbish punches of his own. Overhead belly-to-belly is the one move he can do relatively decently. Stomping kicks, and their timing is way off. Cassidy is bumping before them long before Singh even goes for them. Uh, Cassidy breaks down a whip and then hits a clothesline. They awkwardly work a hammerlock and an armbar. After what feels like an age, Singh is backwards and clubbing punches. They don't go for a rolling leg lock pin, but completely screw it up. Uh, Leaf goes for a superplex, but Singh doesn't seem to really know how to take it. He then shoves Leaf off, hits a bulldog, which Vince called a tiger bomb, and that is the mercifully quick three count. Dan, knock yourself out. Oh, oh God. Um, so how, how is Tiger Ali Singh at work, exactly? He had a five-minute match and somehow managed to have two of the worst botches I've ever seen thrown into it in, in, in two minutes. The roll-up spot itself was... Oh, I, can, I can forgive that because, you know, it's, it's, it's just mistiming. And, but how, how could you not know how to get up to, a, to get a superplex? That, that's surely about in the first week of training is how to, 
how to get to the, you know, if someone lifts you up for vertical suplex to help you up to the top rope. And he just, he just sit, you know, looks like he's just gone into a sack of spuds. Leave <laughs> Cassie's trying to lift him up uh, with all the body strength he can. He can do, and Ty Lee Singh's just there, just going, oh, what do I do, what do I do, what do I do, help? Someone help me, please. And then Vince McMahon, that, you know, um, desperately trying to call back, you know, the great Tiger Mask and say has a Tiger Bomb. And it's like, no, no, Vince. That's nowhere close to a Tiger Bomb. Um, so, yeah, I thought the best part of this match really was Sonny and the end of the bit going all around the commentary desk, uh, acting, you know, really nice and sweet with Jerry, Vince and JR in between. So, yeah, absolutely awful match. Feel sorry for the Leaf Cassidy. He was trying to bump his way through this, but he couldn't do it. Tiger is saying, uh, oh, God, needs, needs to go to the performance centre as quickly as possible just to try and get anything out of this because this, this was bad. This was real bad. Needs to get there and quick. Yeah, I feel very sorry for, for Leaf for Al Snow. Just imagine being him. He's um, been sent to ECW on loan for, it could be anything up to about a year, I think. And he's been there for a month and he gets the call from Vince. He must think, yes, I'm coming back. And really, it means he's being flown halfway around the world to try to make Tiger Ali Singh look watchable in five minutes. Ah, the wrestling business. Tiger Ali Singh has two things going for him. One, he's got the look that makes Vince McMahon go all gooey. And two, he has a dad who used to be a wrestler. I've got very bad Eric Watts flashbacks when I was watching this match. If Tiger Ali Singh had gone for a drop kick and screwed that up, then it really would have been all over. The sense of deja vu would have been complete. <laughs> this man is absolutely nowhere near ready to even step into a ring. He can't do anything. He doesn't know how to do anything. I honestly think Al Snow... I think Al Snow himself gave up after that minute of this match. I mean, if, if you can't get kicks right, then there's nothing going right for you. And as you say, he had no idea where he was meant to be on that suplex spot, did Singh. He just sort of lolled over the rope. His left leg is sort of tied around the rope when he's supposed to be sat down on. He just looked absolutely terrible. This is his second match. His first on TV for about five months. If anything, he's got worse. And this was in a match where that first one, he won with a spinning heel kick, which missed by about two or three feet. Just... Take this guy off TV for good, quite frankly, but just because he has a famous dad should not entitle him to get any sort of roles. He is very possibly the worst wrestler I have seen in the course of this project. That covers some serious ground, so bravo, bravo. Yeah, I know, that's a bold claim, but I think one with some major justification. Who, who, who Can you imagine a, a, a Tiger Ali C Renegade match? Ah, Renegade. I forgot about Renegade. <laughs> I think I intentionally forgot about Renegade. Well, he's, he's yeah. still... I, I believe Luckily, he's still... Luckily, I've never actually seen a... Ma- I've never actually seen a Renegade match based on the recommendations of Bob and everyone else, but just from what I've heard, I think that match could, could have been, you know, five stars. Just <laughs> I would leave that one purely for your imagination. I think... So, uh, who knows? Some people in high places might want to listen to this podcast. I think it is probably best we don't give them ideas. Yes. Tiger Ali Singh. Okay, maybe he isn't. No, no. John, John Gonzalez was supposed to be bad. So I, I can't even give him that one. And as for Renegade, he was a one-shot gimmick. He went on for about a year or so. No, I'm sorry. No, Tiger Ali Singh is the worst. He is the worst. Wow. <laughs> I'm not even going to try and defend it. Yes. Um, let us on a postcard, please. Yes, moving very swiftly on. Ah, Lost Barique was wonderful. Just what I want to see here. Uh, 
Yes, it's uh, Savio and Miguel of the Bariquas going for the Headbangers Tag Team Championship, which they won on Ground Zero. Uh, the Headbangers are very over here, but uh, we are in the birthplace of heavy metal, so you would expect that to be the case. Mosh has even come dressed for the occasion in a Napalm Death t-shirt. I appreciate that sort of effort. Um, Thrasher starts with Miguel, and we get an armbar, and followed by a long headlock. Savio quickly in, after he tripped Thrasher on the outside, and the Bariquas take early control. A spin kick by Savio, of course, and then Miguel's in with a neck vice. Lots of quick tags here. Leg drop and a clothesline. Uh, double team punches as the referee gets distracted, uh, followed by a blind tag. This is absolute formula stuff so far. Uh, the crowd rally Thrasher and he, he hits a crossbody for a two count. Another spin kick by Savio also gets a two. Uh, Miguel goes up for a top rope senton, which he completely whiffs on, but everyone pretends to hit anyway. Uh, he goes to a nerve hold. Followed by a drop kick, followed by a suplex. No real rival reason to this match at all so far. Mosh breaks up the pin, but again, the Bariquas attack. Uh, the, the baby face is tagged, but the referee doesn't see it. I'm taking that one off. Uh, back to the nerve hole, but the crowd are staying with this match, perhaps surprisingly. Savio goes for a splash, but Thrash against his knees up. Uh, we then get another long headlock spot. Thrasher fights out, and he gets two off a sunset flip. Savio misses a charge and thrust against the side suplex. Hot tag to Mosh and he cleans house. He hits a runner off the top to Miguel, but Savio breaks up the pin. Uh, Mosh then hits a power slam for two. Uh, Miguel finds that he hits a power bomb on Thrasher, who is the illegal man, but Mosh comes in with the move that used to be called the whoopee cushion for a cover, a count, and a win for our champions. Dan? Um, I- I'm going to just guess, based on your match notes there, that you didn't like this match, Rory. <laughs> You catch on fast, Mr. Walling. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I, I actually kind of liked it. I'm sorry. Um, it's allowed. Because, okay, so, it's a match involving Sergio Vega, so obviously you know, we low expectations. Right. The fact is, the headbangers in this match were really over. Um, oh, yes. And I think that Vega and Miguel just worked a very smart match for this crowd, which was they just stuck with the headbangers throughout this match, and they just prolonged the hot tag, prolonged the hot tag, you know, made that heat segment work, and by the time, you know, the the third kind of, you know, you know um, misdirection happened with the referee, I actually kind of got invested. I was like, come on, headbangers, you can do this. You can get into this match. And... That just shows you that if a crowd is engaged and they like you and they are willing to stick with you, then even as even guys that are as mediocre workers as you can get in, in the headbangers and Vega in particular, or I think Gal's got something about him, um, that you can actually make a good match. And I think they actually did this. Now, in terms of the actual kind of work itself, Savia Vega is Savia Vega. Um, Miguel hit a very shite powerbomb at the end to set up the, the finish. Um, and there was nothing special, like, in terms of moves-wise, but in terms of a psychology-filled match to get the crowd invested, I think this worked really well. Opinions and all that. No, well, I absolutely agree with you on the, on the crowd. They did stay with the bangers from start to finish. You do need to give credit to our old friend Tag Team Formula for that. The bangers are over. As I said on part one, their work is very sloppy, but that's part of their charm, I think. They, the thing I do like about the bangers is they became baby faces without really doing anything. They came in as heels, but people just gravitated towards them, so they just kept in his faces. Now, I have no problem with that. This just bored me, maybe because 
I'm getting tired of tag team formula. Normally for anything in pro wrestling, I am of the school of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I've said that many times on these shows before. I get that, I accept it. Yet, I'm getting a bit bored of the block the referee, cut off the ring, blind tag, faces get a tag in, it's not seen, Bonzo, Gonzo, four-man breakdown. There are other ways of having a tag team match. And yes, I accept that this is not an A-grade pay-per-view. This is, as I said earlier, for some we probably saw it as a house show. Let's just run through the motions and go home. I get that. That's fine. And in its own context, I do agree with you, Dan. It worked. And the team people wanted to see win did win. No issues with that. But I'm getting I'm getting bored of it. But people listening to this will be very angry when I'm getting bored of tag team wrestling as a whole. That it actually isn't quite true, but I do think there are opportunities to mix it up a bit. Uh, I'm not sure if Savio and Miguel are really the people to do it. The headbangers, if they want to hold the belts for a while, then I'm okay with that because people are into them. And at the end of the day, if the crowd are with you, who really cares what I think? We get some footage from earlier of Jim Ross having a sit-down interview with Davey Boy Smith. We learn that his sister Tracy is, one, is, uh, is once again battling cancer. She first contracted cancer at the age of one and uh, it's come back recently and it looks terminal, I'm sad to say. He is dedicating this match to her. Uh, Davey tells that his mum and dad are in the crowd today alongside his wife Diana and his other sister. Davey has dropped two stone for this matchup apparently and looking at him I think he's probably right. This is the biggest night of his career, he's ready to go. Not much of note here other than him dedicating the match to his sister but let's face it, who brought this pay-per-view to hear David Boysmith speak? Flash Punk comes down to the ring and he shakes hands with pretty much everybody. The Patriot has his hands full with the American flag, though. Vince says that the Patriot gets somewhat of a mixed reaction. Indeed, Vince, it's mixed somewhere between hate and loathing. Our next match then is Flash Punk versus the Patriot. We get a handshake to start. They exchange go-behinds and uh, leg takedowns. We get a standoff and another handshake. Here's, uh, here's the king on commentary. He told us that he saw Vince McMahon last night with, I quote, an 18-stone slapper. Vince does not confirm or deny this, but he just responds, he responds with that <laughs> laugh. That will be a yes then, Vincent. Uh, back in the ring, overhand knuckle-lock, then Patriot tackles Funk down and gets booed for doing so. Funk back with a couple of drop kicks and some arm drags for the Patriot. It's a close line. Del Wilkes grabs a chin lock for a little while. Uh, Funk rallies out the Patriot and shoves him down into another chin lock. Uh, Patriot then goes for a charge, misses and hits the turnbuckles. Funk lifts himself up onto the top rope from a seated position. Fantastic. And he hits a crossbody for two. He gets a chin lock of his own. Chops in the corner, but Patriot no-sells them. That's a bad choice of spot for this match, I think. An atomic drop followed by a side suplex. Delayed cover gets a two count. Uh, Patriot with a body scissors, which Funk then shifts into a kind of reverse surfboard. Again, very nice. Back up and he hits a rolling kick for a two count. Patriot with a power slam for two. Funk with a jackknife roll up for two. Then the Patriot with the missile for two. They're now just exchanging moves here, really. Uh, Funk with a slam and he hits the twisting splash off the top rope, but he only gets a two count. He then hits a moonsault rather than a funky, funky flash splash. And the Patriot blocks it with his knees. Patriot's up, uncle slam, and that's your lot. Patriot grabs the flag and gets booed for his trouble. Damn. How stupid are the Fed? <laughs> where, do you, where do you want me to stop? 
Because surely they would think that a guy who is billed as Mr. America, the guy who is, you know, the embodiment of all American values, would to get some sort of a mixed reaction in another kind of, not anti-American, but sceptic country. So why not, instead of having the Patriot come out waving his American flag and having the big, you know, stars and stripes on the Titan Tron, why don't you just have him come out, go, hang on, you know, do a little stop and wave the finger, and then come out with a British flag? And go, and then go. Oh, the, he's the patriot. He's the patriot of all, etc., etc. And then at least you get the crowd invested, and you get them at least interested in this match because they couldn't give two hoots about this. And not only that, because the patriot is so used to getting, I don't know, some sort of you know USA and crowd favor behind him, he looked so shackled and flummoxed in this match. You know, he would do a move, he would look up. He would be going, you know, and you see it in his head going, why are they booing me? I, I'm, I'm just doing my usual thing. Why isn't this working? Um, it really affected the match for me. Uh, Flash Funk, as always, when he managed to get a bit of offense in, looked great because he is great, but never will ever get a opportunity with this gimmick. Um, again, the, it just felt like, as you said, a series of movies from bit to bit. And then, just to catch it off, the Patriot wins the match and then goes to the flag again. Stop it. It's not working. <laughs> oh, and us, us, us. And uh, we're up to 11 on the King's English slang terms here by Jerry Lauder. Uh, I got bored and started counting um, after the first match. So, <laughs> I'll, keep it, I'll keep it running tally after the like, end of the night. If you if you want me to, but, but please go ahead. But remember, very importantly, do not count eighteen stone slapper twice because it goes back to that one again a bit later on. <laughs> yeah, he was. I might, need to, I might need to recount. He was definitely pushing that one hard. I wonder if there might well be more to more to that than meets the eye. Hey, eh, Vincent. Uh, yes, once again, what's the second time I've been distracted from talking about this match by Vince possibly getting it on with Bella Rembug? Uh, right, where were we? Flashpoint versus the Patriot. Yes. Times have changed, and the WWF have been instrumental in those changes. They've been running country versus country angles for pretty much the entire year. So, it's 1997, it's not 1992. You, when Hacksaw Jim Duggan comes out at the Sheffield Arena at UK Rampage, he is going to be able to get a very young UK crowd to chant USA. Five years on, that's not going to happen. And it's not even as if the Patriot, as you say, was being necessarily respectfully patriotic. He was there being Mr. RR waving the flag. You're going to get a negative reaction for The Federation must have been aware of this. And just to cap matters off, they actually booked him against Flash Funk in a face-face match, just overemphasising it even more. So that was an own goal that they really should have avoided on that one. The match itself was okay. So it did just degenerate into a exhibition of moves without any real connection between them, especially towards the end. Flash showed flashes, pun intended, of the excellence that he can bring. I was going to call him just a jobber to the stars, but I don't even think he's that. He's just an outright jobber these days who gets who's allowed to get a little bit of offence each match. That's such a waste of somebody who's got so much talent. I mean, I just count myself very lucky in the course of this project that we get to watch all three organisations. So we've seen over the last four years just some of the excellent stuff that he is capable of. Here he is saddled with a nothing gimmick 
who's there just to get the crowd to pop a couple of his big manoeuvres. Such a waste. And this match was just not a very good idea at all. The Patriot wins. Uh, they shot themselves in the foot here from a situation which just didn't need to happen. Nobody was calling for there to be a Patriot flashback match. I'm not even sure the Patriot even needed to make the trip onto this show. Just the WWF making themselves look very stupid in a situation which was not called for it. So, indeed, Dan, the question remains, how stupid are the Fed? One day I'm going to come up with an answer for that one. But uh, we're going to need a particularly long podcast special to really cover everything. I was going to say, if you've got eight hours to kill. <laughs> I'll have one with Bob, see if we can get a special or two yeah. or ten going for that one. We go to the back where we see Animal and Hawk. They're shouting a lot, as normal. They say nothing of note. But whatever they, the nothing they do say is very loud. Uh, Henry and Phineas won up the Patriot by unfurling the Confederate flag. Which doesn't really get booed. It must be said that, having said that though, Joe the King Lawler does like that one. Moving very quickly on from that. For about the umpteenth time this year, it's the Legion of Doom taking on the Godwins. Henry and Animal start. Punches by Hog, but Animal hits a shoulder block. Phineas is quickly tagged in and he faces Hawk. Irish with the corner clotheslines, but he misses a charge. Uh, Phineas locks on a long shin lock. And loads of those today. Henry in and he misses an elbow. Another clothesline by Hawk. George Acker, Animal tagged in for another headlock. Double clothesline spot and we spill to the outside. Phineas Godwin with a Fujiwara armbar. Yes, I'll say it again. Phineas Godwin with a Fujiwara armbar. One for the King's English count. He saw it on the telly. Prince actually got there first, but never mind. Body slam, but he hits a boot. Hawk in with a not very hot tag. He gives pick the hangman, but Henry is in to break it up. He hits a slop drop, but a delayed cover only gets two. Phineas chokes him with the old stars and bars. Uh, JR gives us a history lesson about the Confederate flag, whilst King asks what side he fought on. Uh, the old ones are the best. The crowd chant for the LOD whilst the Godwins take control. Hawk with yet another clothesline, and he ta- then he tags in Animal. A double clothesline spot. <laughs> wow. And all four men are in. Henry gets sent out with a clothesline. He's out, so Phineas takes the Doomsday device, and the Legion of Doom get the victory. Over to you, Dan. Right, I'll get the uh, uninterested bits out of the way. It's the match between the LOD and the Godwin, so it's going to be rubbish, and it was. Boring, slow, predictable, because we've seen the match about five times this year, at least, and they've all been very, very boring. But there's the interesting question. Rory, you know, you've, you know your history a lot more than I do. When was the last time the LOD had a good tag match? Not a six-man, not a five-man, not like a gimmick, a proper, straight-up, two-on-two tag team match. When was the last good oh, match they had? God. Um, I know a lot of people hold a bit of stock by their match. I think it was Top of my Head was against uh, Sting Luger at, I want to say, Super Brawl in 96. Although I, was, I wasn't particularly too fond of that one myself. It might have been uncensored. It was around about that time. We're going back to the Fed. We're going back years and years. And even then, their great matches were sort of uh, plundery fests. Cool. Nasty boys at SummerSlam 91, maybe. The pickings are slim, let's say that. See, this is what I'm, I'm thinking, like, they're over. They're, they're continuously over. They get great reactions. But in terms of the actual in-ring product, the LOG just are not delivering. And they haven't delivered for so long now that I just think that they're bust. They're, they're a busted flush. And they're, all they've got left to go for is their, is their um, crowd reaction. And that is the only thing they've got left to give because... 
you know, they, they've been in the Fed now for, you know, almost almost nine months. And they face, you know, the, all the big teams. They face the British Bulldog and Owen Hart, who are probably are two very, very good workers. They've gone through all the you know, the other drafts, like the Godwins and the, the new Rockers and all the tag teams from kind of the first half. Of the year, and they've just not been able to get a good match out of any of them. And I know this was a kind of a, a phone-it-in style show for some of the talent, and yet I'm not. Shouldn't, I shouldn't be expecting this match to be like a, yeah, a, a classic. But at the same time, I like to think that a team of the star pilot of LOD should be able to get a good match out of a team, and they're just not. They just aren't doing it, and they haven't done it either. And when was the last time the Goblins had a good match? Period. Like, so <laughs> that's a slightly easier question to answer. Yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah, I just, I really don't see, the, I, I see the points in them because they get a good reaction, but in terms of a, a team that I want to see, I honestly would rather watch the Headbangers because at least they have an upside at the minute and they're over and they've kind of, they've got some sort of thing about them that I think could be entertaining. There is nothing about the LOD right now that I enjoy watching. Yeah, you're very much preaching to the converted on this one. I I groaned when the LOD made their return on the ECW invasion of sorts events back in the, the end of February. And even there, in front of a hot, hot, hardcore crowd, the LOD were, were cheered to the rafters. So people do still love these guys. Uh, is it just nostalgia? Is it people misremembering how supposedly good they are? I don't know, but it happens all over the world wherever they go. To me, it's completely inexplicable. And I, I've never been a fan, even in their heyday, if I'm, if I'm being really honest. I'm sure there were people you know, shouting at their headsets when you were giving me, were quizzing me about their matches saying, oh, they did this and this back in the NWA in 1986 and Crockett and rah, and rah, yeah, 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 no, no, Jim, no. Jim, Cor- Jim Cornette style, you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely, Wait, waving his tennis jacket at me. Yeah. Yeah. These guys know how to work, man, they do flippy stuff, man. It's not the point. Like, they just really, they, bo- they bored me at best and they caused me to break out in hives at worst. Hawk has just never been Hawk has just never been a good worker at all. Animal is just about acceptable. In other words, he's got a decent power slam. Oh, and they've got a fairly good finisher as well. And they're just chopped liver, in my opinion. I just do not get it. Is it the fact that they ride motorbikes? Is it the fact that they still wear studs? I mean, Iron Man hasn't been their entrance music for many years now, so it can't even be that. I just... Don't get it, and I just do not want to get it. By all accounts, Hawk is slipping back into his old ways anyway. As we said in the news on part one of this, the WWF show, he passed out on a plane at the beginning of this month. Substances may have been involved, let's say that. And if he is starting to flake out again, never the safest worker at the best of times, then I would be very, very worried. I haven't mentioned the Godwins at all in the course of this uh, discussion because... You know, we don't really need to. We know they're bad. I think they know they're bad. They're just there these days. I don't really know what you do with them. I know, I know what I'd like to do with them, but I don't see that happening. But yes, when I talk about being completely cheesed off of tag team wrestling, this is the kind of thing I mean. I just do not need to see these two ever again, yet I don't think I'm going to get my wish. Jim Ross is in the ring wearing a, a very fetching, i.e. bucking ugly, waistcoat to talk to Ken Shamrock. We see the spine busted by Farouk a couple of weeks ago on Raw, which legitimately injured him and punched his lung. Ken wished he was competing tonight, but he will be back soon. He's always ready to go, anywhere, anytime, at any place. 
It must be said, he also gets a bit of a mixed reaction here. There's definitely some boost for Ken at this point. I wonder if the crowd were expecting Austin, who does not show up on this show, incidentally. Uh, Shamrock just yaks with JR for a bit, and then here comes Rockabilly. He accuses Ken of wimping it out and just having a summer cake as an excuse to not have to wrestle. I thought he was the toughest man in the world, he incorrectly quotes. You damn right make me sick. He gives Ken a slap, who snaps and locks it in the toe thing, the ankle lock, until Billy taps like a Billy gun. Very simple on this one, Dan. Why is Rockabilly? Um, I don't know. Why, why is the oh, meaning five, of life? Five, <laughs> five months of Rockabilly has still been a thing. Less than nobody cares. Just, what's the point? It's, it's, it's literally, I, I literally forgot he was on it. <laughs> I've watched the show and I forgot this second happened because it's, it's, it's involving him. It, I was I was on the show for his debut, and I remember how like dead the crowd were when he came out for his debut. Imagine how little he matters now. Um, <laughs> like, could could you have gotten like someone who's actually on TV maybe for for this segment rather than Rockabilly? But I I don't know. It was just there to give to get the exposure of a Shamrock, I guess. And um, I guess if you're not if you're if you're involved with a talent that's so far down the card, is it worth it just to get him out into there rather than having him not be on the show at all and maybe not get associated with this sort of talent? I don't know. But just any any segment which involves Rockabilly is, is immediately a, a D- minus in the, in the scale. Um, but I, I don't know. Is, is the salvage of a Billy Gun potentially? I don't know. There's there's bound to be something out there that well, actually everything should be better than Rockabilly. But anyway, um, yeah. What is Rockabilly, Rory? I don't know. <laughs> Greater minds than us would struggle with that question, I think. Yes. I mean, you didn't like his debut when after months and months of build-up of a Honky Top Man's protege, it turns out to be Billy Gun wearing a jacket with the words Rockabilly emblazoned on the back. Well, that's one of the moments of the year. Yes, there's just no there's just no need for him. This just hasn't worked. Yes, this got Ken to do something on the show, which is fine, but Billy Gunn. W-H-Y. No need, no need at all. Vince talks to Brett in the back, who really does get the proverbial mixed reaction here, which I find very interesting. <laughs> Brett isn't really listening, though, as he says, the UK feels like home. <laughs> he will defeat The Undertaker tonight. Vince reckons Taker will be all over him. Brett anticipates the hardest fight he'll ever have. This is a weird one, as Vince responds to the boos by telling Brett that I don't think they like you here, and the fans actually boo that. Now those country brummy buggers. <laughs> Brett is about to go on a rant about America until Vince mercifully cuts him off. Brett just rounds up by saying the support of the fans that does matter to him. Vader stomps down to the ring for our next match. Owen pretty much gets the reaction that Brett wishes he got, and they cheer him. Pretty much 80-20, I'd say. Even the Canadian flag doesn't work against him. Owen Hart then versus Vader. Lock up and Vader shoves Owen off. He brings on the crowd's booze so we know where we're going here. That's a nice reading of the crowd there too. Tie up again, but a huge Vader attack sends Owen down. Owen attempts a sunset flip and he ducks the sit-down splash. Owen with a great little rana and a kip-up crossbody for two. He goes for the sharpshooter, but he can't get it on. He's kicked down to the mat. Uh, Owen battles out of a suplex into a roll-up for another two-count. 
He again tries for the sharp shooting with this time Vader makes the ropes. Owen goes for a crucifix but Vader reverses to a Samoan drop. Big Vader splash off the second rope but Owen is out at two. And the crowd were really into that kick out. Owen takes the Brett bump off an Irish whip. Owen goes for a body slam but that ain't going to happen. A big short up and clothesline they were into an arm lock. But a headlock and Owen fights out. Vader with another charge in the corner and then back to the arm lock. Followed this time by an ankle lock. The crowd is still going with Owen. Both guys are up. Vader misses the charge this time. Once again, Owen goes for a body slam and once again he fails. Vader with another charge for a two count. Suit bone punches and once again working on the ankle. Owen crawls out of it and they slug on the ground. Vader wins that exchange. Vader with a splash again, this time off the mat and gets a two count. Owen blocks a powerbomb and hits an enziguri. Another attempt at the sharpshooter, and this time he gets on. Vader gets to the ropes again, though, this time fairly quickly. To pay off the little mini-story, Owen does execute a body slam on the big man, and he gets a two-count off that. Vader is back with another standing squash attack. I'll make that the fourth in this match. He primes the Vader bomb, but Owen gets his knees up. Owen hits a missile drop kick and kips up into a spinning heel kick. One, two, no Vader is out. Owen goes up top for, I think, a crossbody, but Vader catches him into a big power slam, and that gives the Mastodon the win. Dan? I really enjoyed this match. Um, it was, I think it was really interesting how Brett got the, the mixed reaction, as we've discussed, but Owen got a hero's welcome in this match. And I think it's great that, I imagine they probably did think if Vader has been sort of semi-turning face throughout September on TV, that maybe they went into this match thinking that we'll go with Vader as a face and Owen as the, as the smarmy heel, but in the end, they just switched it around immediately and Vader goes into big bully mode and Owen goes into, you know, the young face territory and they made that match great. Um, you know, Owen's selling was, was great. You know, his, ow, my knee! Wait a minute, when he's getting worked over in the in the leg hole was great. Um, they told the brilliant story of, of Owen trying to, you know, slam Vader and then when it finally happens, the crowd go absolutely fantastic for it. Great Hurricane Rana spots. You know, Owen was, you know, working the great style that he always does. I thought Vader was really good in this match. Um, and a really good finish. You know, the like, snap on that power slam was fantastic. Um, and Animal could learn a thing or two from Vader's power slam there. It was great. So yeah, I just, I just, I really enjoyed this match. I, it was one of those matches where I think it's, it's one, keep it simple, stupid. And both these guys played the roles perfectly, executed the moves really well. Really good match. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, great fun. Probably the match I enjoyed the most on the show because this was two old pros knowing how to get it done. They weren't just going out there and just listing off their moves A to B to C and just slumping off to the back after another job done on a house show. As I said during my play-by-play, this was reading the crowd par excellence. I wonder if they had maybe two or three types of match in their head or how to actually go with this, but they realised that Owen was getting cheered. Vader tried to milk the booze after a minute and he was successful in doing so, so they thought, yeah, let's go with this. Let's uh, have a flashback to early 93 Vader, and boy, was I glad to see that. Owen was perfect for this role. It's amazing how somebody who's been a heel for three and a half years, okay, we'll overlook the Canada thing for now. He has been a heel in the storyline for getting on three and a half, four years. 
yet he's slotted here into the plucky babyface role like he's been playing it all his life. The man is just so talented. I still think he's undervalued to some degree, actually. He's, he gets pigeonholed as the wrong type of worker. He's not really a quote-unquote high flyer, although I reckon if the time ever called to be one, I reckon he could do that very, very easily and extremely well. He's just an excellent in-ring general is Owen Hart, and maybe he still is to bring back a storyline from early 1994, still to some degree in the shadow of his brother. He's got so much talent in his own right. Again, I still don't think this is a, a stellar performance from Vader compared to what we would have seen in WCW three or four years ago. He wasn't on absolute awesome. As I say, he went to the Vader splash smash attack once too often, in my opinion. But uh, he was in there with somebody who knew how to sell those moves really well. And that finish was terrific. It was really believable. His finisher couldn't get it done, but Owen goes up to the top rope. And think about it from a KFA perspective. Somebody on Vader's size catching you in midair, flipping you around, and slamming you down to the mat for about eight feet. Now, that is a, that is a real legitimate, believable finish in anybody's book. So, yes, I very much recommend this match. The Owen Hart work style, which he hasn't been able to work for a long time, against somebody who should be, and doesn't look like he's going to be now because he has effectively turned face, who should just be a bullying, marauding heel. And this match is a nice suggestion of how things could have been in a parallel universe. Yeah, good stuff here, and well worth checking out, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, we just want, just before we head on, I was going to say, should this, should this be a dress rehearsal for Brett B. Vader at Bad Blood? Uh, because this that's the, that's the match that like if you look at the WWF star powers, I mean, you've got Taker, Sean, Austin, Vader, and Brett, really, are, and potentially Owen, if like the guys who are probably a could main event a pay per view without any question. Brett versus Vader is the only match on pay per view that hasn't happened yet. If Vader is turning face to take on Brett, that surely should be a great double header in the side, you know, to, to kind of really give this pay-per-view a boost in long, alongside Sean versus Taker in Hell in the Cell, which we'll get onto later, of course. But what do you think? Should this match be a dress rehearsal for that one? Well, we've seen Brett and Vader a couple of times on TV. They actually had a no-holds barred on the first roar of the month, which, again, was fairly short-ended in... Yeah, but it's not a pay-per-view. No, absolutely not. It was, just, it, it was a, a taster. They also had a decent little match. I think it was on the very first roar of the year. I'd love to see these two go out for 20 minutes on pay-per-view. Doesn't look like we're going to get it, though. The event, as it stands at Bad Blood, involving Bret Hart, who is the WWF champion, lest we forget, is a meaningless flag match team with the Bulldog against the Patriot Invader, which is a complete... Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's all, as we'll say <laughs> later on, is the epitome of a one-match show, and that one match does not involve a WWF champion. Vader Bret is... You're right, is your right step. One potentially big marquee match which they've got available to them on their roster, which they haven't done on pay-per-view. And with, I reckon they could tear it up. I reckon Brett, so it just like Brett would be super motivated for that kind of match. Which, as we'll get to in a second, I'm not so sure he was on this particular show. Yeah, it looks like it's for the birds, I'm afraid, so we're just going to see see them shimming up a pole trying to grab, grab their country's respective flag for 15 minutes instead. Uh, why don't they listen to us, eh? Mm. 
wasted opportunities. That's becoming the theme of the night. Yeah, I'll get my armchair out though. It might it might work. <laughs> How could it not? How could yeah. it not? We get a pre-taped Undertaker interview. This time there will be no special referee like there was at SummerSlam. So Brett has to look into the eyes of the Reaper. Usual stuff. Eternal damnation. Taker of souls. Rest in rest in peace. Blah 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 blah. The lights go out. And here comes the dead man. Same entrance as ever, but damn if it doesn't work. Brett comes out to a loud reaction. It might be because his music was playing. It's actually hard to tell at this point if it's a positive one or not, but uh, it was loud, make no mistake. Brett gives a kid his sunglasses. Feels like it's been a long time since we saw that, although it happened, of course, back at Canadian Stampede. So then, here is our semi-main event. You know that because it's Brett Hart defending the WWF Championship. (laughs) It is against The Undertaker in a rematch from SummerSlam. Okay, this is a long one. Stick with me. They both launch into each other from the bell and Undertaker gets the upper hand. Double-handed choke into the corner. Taker stalks the ref and then Brett unhooks the turnbuckle pad. Uh, what a baby face. I wasn't expecting that. Brett is whipped into the other turnbuckle and he hits back with feet. Brett slugs Undertaker who wins a reversal spot and we hit a clothesline. The crowd at this point seems to be booing whoever is on offense, which is just totally bizarre. Early kick out from the sharpshooter, Brett hits a diving clothesline. Another clothesline over the top, Undertaker lands on his feet. Brett hops off the apron, gets caught into a bear, bear hug, followed by a sort of spine buster. Arn Anderson would not be jealous of that one. Brett gets rammed into the post. They rumble on the ramp in front of a We Want ECW on Sky sign. <laughs> Good luck, mate. Body slam <laughs> on the ramp, and then a whole city fan in the second row really like that one. They roll back into the ring. Kicks by Undertaker, then a big DDT and leg drop by the Hickman. Zombies sit up, but the crowd, eh, not really cheering that. Brett with some rib kicks. He then grinds his foot onto Taker's throat for a five count. The dead man is up and he whips Brett for the Brett bump to the exposed buckle. Undertaker with a throwback to his mean Mark Callis days as he hits a heart punch. Things slow down a bit as Taker comes in with some elbow strikes. Rudimental arm submission and a roll up for two. Brett with kicks to the knee but they have no effect. Undertaker hits back with a backbreaker. Uh, Irish whips the corner but Undertaker misses a leaping knee. Brett goes back to the leg again, works on that and he wrenches it a bit. He carries on focusing on the leg, which Mr. Bob Bamble will enjoy, until we get the old ring post figure of four. Back in, and Brett is still stomping the legs. And our standard figure of four, which he holds in the ring for quite a while. The crowd take a long time to bite on this one, but they eventually do kick in with the rest in peace chance. He then reverses the figure of four, we reverse it again, and we the ropes. Undertaker struggles to stand, and he gets uh, hit with a side Russian leg sweep and a suplex, both of which go two. Brett with a backbreaker, Brett with a top rope elbow, but Undertaker meets him with a big boot. Off the ropes and both men are down for a double clothesline. Undertaker gets up first and he goes for a leg drop which Brett tries to turn into the sharpshooter, and he does. Undertaker is a long way from the ropes. He kicks Brett off and Brett goes for it again. And again, Undertaker manages to fight up. Both men are on their feet. He goes for a choke slam, but Brett scraps out of it. Undertaker hits a flurry of punches and another leg drop for a two. Brett goes outside and grabs the ring bell. He tries to belt the taker with it, but uh, he gets blocked by a kick. Undertaker then tries to use the belt, but Mike Kyoto yanks it off him. In the confusion, Brett chops Undertaker's knee, and he goes to work on it again in the same manner we saw earlier. Brett gets kicked off again, this time into a cameraman who was on the apron. Back in for an Irish whip. Brett holds off. Uh, Brett holds onto the rope off a whip, but the second time around he gets choked into the post. 
Taker does the rope walk, but Brett blocks it with a hip toss. Undertaker teases the tombstone, but Brett rolls off the ropes with an O'Connor roll and gets a two count. Undertaker goes for a tombstone, but Brett somehow manages to get, neck, get caught neck first in the top rope. He's trapped between ropes one and two as Undertaker punches him a few times. Uh, the referee can't free Brett, so he signals for the bell. The referee pays for that with a choke slam. The usual gaggle of officials come down, Owen Hart's with them as well, and they try to get Brett out of the hangman. Gerald Briscoe takes a choke slam because why not? The final call in this match is a win for Bret Hart via disqualification. Dan, your thoughts on this uh, very long half an hour match? Mm. Yeah, it didn't seem that long if I'm, if I'm being honest from watching it live. Um, so that must be a good thing, I guess. Um, I thought this was pretty good, actually. I thought Bret's methodical style, I actually, I've never really been a huge fan of, but it worked here, in my opinion. It, it was... Um, good to see working over you know, the logical style of working over the knee, but it wasn't it wasn't laborious like it was against you know the early Undertaker matches or the match against Sid, for example, which you always bring up, Roy. Um, I loved how you know Brett unbuckles the, you know t- unbuckles the turnbuckle pad, but then gets whipped into it, and then later in the match he goes for it again, and then you can just see that little oh no face when he realizes what's going to happen and he kind of slides it into so he takes the brunt of the action on the actual ring post rather than the more damaging turnbuckle. I thought that was quite nice. I loved how both of these guys were able to counter each other's signature spots because they wrestled each other so much over the last few months. You know, take a block in the sharpshooter three times, kicking either kicking out or grabbing Brett by the throat, and then Brett launching Taker off the top rope with the hip toss and the arm drag, sorry. Um, and yeah, I, I really got invested in this match as it kind of got into the closing stretch, which I really didn't think I would do, considering how long it, it was. It was. However, that's really poor finish. Um, look, I've got, you know, obviously this wasn't going to be a clean win for Brad because it's going to take a needs to be protected for, for her in the cell. However, it just... The way Taker was launching punches at Brett and then how the referee stopped it, it looked really weak. It just looked like just general working over. I don't understand why they would have got, you know, Taker to start punching him. Referee started getting in his face and going, come on, get out of the way, I need to free him, I need to free him. And then Taker throws him across the ring or punches him and that's how he gets disqualified rather than that sort of lacklustre kind of anti-climax of a finish. Um, and yeah, it, that sort of just cut the match a little for me. But in terms of the actual bell to bell, I enjoyed this match more than I thought I was going to do. I would have chopped eight to ten minutes off this match. Their match at SummerSlam was originally booked to be around twenty minutes, but after Austin's injury and they had to go home early in that one, another eight or ten minutes were clamped on to the SummerSlam match, and it showed. Here, I still think they managed enough to keep things interesting and watchable for the half an hour, yet they did go to the same well once or twice, which I think was possibly avoidable. I like Brett's leg work in this match. I liked his leg work in the match against Patriot. I like when Brett Hart works the leg. <laughs> that might not please Mr. Bamba, but uh, I think Brett is a master. It makes perfect sense. He's against The Undertaker. He's six foot ten. He's 328 pounds. His finishing moves to the sharpshooter. You're going to try to keep him down. And 
although they did say repeat things a little too often, there was enough interest in mixing up in the main bulk of the offense, which I really liked. Sometimes Brett will try and punch me. Sometimes he'll try and grind it. Sometimes he'll hit a dragon screw. He'll try and uh, put him around the ropes for the figure of four. There was enough extra stuff here going on where it didn't just become stop, 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 which it could have been, especially as this was a a title match, which wasn't the main focus of the show, which nobody, I don't think anybody was expecting a clean finish in. Yes. I don't think people on the whole, though, really want to see Undertaker in half an hour epics. It's, that is not to say to any shape or form that I want to see a return to Undertaker having six, seven minute matches against the slobs he was dumped in with through 94 and 95. I think we can find a happy medium between those horror shows and matches like this. I don't really want to see Mark Calloway trying to get down and dirty on the mat. If somebody who is so very protected of his character, I'm not sure it absolutely works. Yeah, if you are going to do it that way, put him in with somewhere like someone like Brett. Yeah. This is probably out and out of the three big matches they've had. It was the one I probably enjoyed the most, despite it being a bit too long for me. And that finish... It sucked, but I appreciated it in, in a weird way. It had that air of believability to it. Well, yeah, if you went for a tombstone close to the ropes, it's it's plausible that your opponent would would end up caught in them. Is that a bit too much of a stretch? Yeah, maybe it is, but I bought it. It just looked so anticlimactic when the bell was actually called for just after punch, punch, punch. And any, anything else would have been better. And I just don't undertake go to town on him. I mean, maybe then Undertaker could have used the bell that was in the ring and that caused the disqualification. I've been okay with that. But just throwing punches, no, it was, it was too much for me. And I, maybe the two could have rocked a bit more after the match as well. I thought that ended a little abruptly after Gerald Briscoe, of all people, takes a choke slam. But yeah, for a match which was never going to end quickly, this was uh, this did its job between two, again, two old pros who could have phoned it in. It almost would have forgiven them if these two had just run it through from A to Z, but they didn't. And it's almost hard to credit Brett these days on this podcast. I feel almost like we have to criticise him, even when it's not really warranted. But uh, here, I thought he gave, uh, gave a pretty good showing. And so, one more question on this match, Dan. Do you think this should be it for these two guys now? Because they've had two big... OK, they had the Royal Rumble match way back when at 96, but they've had two big matches now in, in a row. They had a finish that involved Shawn Michaels and they've had a DQ. Is this a match they can or should go back to at any point or should be a draw a line under it? Draw a line under it for me. I think that it looks like, you know, if the grand plan comes together, we've now got Brett to kind of, you know, just have a placeholder against Patriot Invader. The rights of Ongs of that are not for now. Um, and then move on to Shawn in... Um, the winter and through to the Royal Rumble and then potentially a match with Austin again for that, you know, that or whoever it may be at WrestleMania. So, yeah, I, I think these two have done now. I think Undertaker has got other plans that we've still got Paul Bearer's storyline still on London, um, kind of under the radar that whoever knows that's when it's going to kick on. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that you overperformed, in my opinion, for who they, who's in the ring with them. And how, what sort of style of matches, you know, they generally take. I think they've done really well for themselves, to be honest. And I think they should, you know, 
you know, call a line on the list and say, well done, guys, you put on a really good series of matches, but it's time to move on to fresh feuds. And I would put, give both these guys two thumbs up. Yeah, I don't think Undertaker needs the title. I, mean, I know he only lost it last month, but he's got whatever this Paul Bearer and his brother's storyline, wherever that's going. Rumours are that that's going to surface again next month. We'll see. And as for Brett, he's got many other challenges, say, at the Newmont with Austin at WrestleMania next year, perhaps. After working through Michaels, you've got possibility of Michaels at WrestleMania, possibility of Austin at WrestleMania. Yeah, and I'd, I've got, I think you've got to roll with Brett as a champion against fellow workers all the way up until and possibly even beyond WrestleMania. But yeah, these two, Undertaker and Bret Hart, have absolutely not disgraced themselves. I do think the matches could have been better with a bit of tweaking here and there, but above all, I think there's been more pros than cons. In two matches, which as I say have lasted for half an hour each, I'd have made them a bit shorter, but you've got to give both these guys credit for that. In an era where people's attention spans aren't always particularly great, They've managed to hold people's interest a lot, and that is credit to the both of them. So, yeah, fine work from both. But we're going to hit our main event now very shortly after an interview with Sean backstage, and he gets booed pretty much out of the building. He is going to become the first Grand Slam winner in the WWF. Vince asks him a rather odd question, i.e., can you top this? But Sean deals with it okay, i.e., just pointed his crotch, which he's been caught a lot recently. He then comes out and he drives on down to the ring. He still gets the girly pop, but otherwise it's pretty much all hatred for him. He still slaps a few hands on the way down, though, all the same. Uh, somebody tries to give him a British Bulldog action figure from about 1991, and Sean just dumps it down his own, just dumps it into his trunks. Uh, the kid in the Man United 1990 Wake it in front of the hard camera is not happy with that. Royal Britannia strikes up, and of course now the crowd are right there. Uh, Davey is indeed brought to the ring with his uh, with his ill sister Tracy, who he sadly heard about earlier. She does not look in a good way at all, I'm sad to say. She goes to sit with Diana in the front row. And so here we go, our main events of the evening. It is the British Bulldog defending his European title against the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels. Vince McMahon makes a mistake right from the start when he says that Davey Boy is lifting the Union Jack in the ring. Nope, he's lifting the Union flag. He's not on a boat. <laughs> Pedant's corner, everybody. Michaels takes off for a while and, and uh, stalls outside, but he gets in eventually. Bulldog shoves him, and we are now officially underway. More big chance for Davy Boy. They hook up, and Davy wins. They grapple in the corner. Michaels gets thrown off the top rope, and Michaels stalls again. Back in for a big whip, and the HBK dives over a few tackles, but he takes a clothesline into the railing. He then calls for a timeout. Uh, rake in the face on the apron, but Davy blocks a shot to the buckles. He then flings Sean back in with a kind of reverse suplex sort of thing. Okay. Military press, but Earl Hefner stops him from throwing Sean over the top rope. He gets an abdominal stretch instead. Michaels gets out of that with a hip toss. Massive backdrop by the Bulldog and Michaels is outside again. Bulldog then hurls him back in and we get some nice arm drags followed by an arm bar. A quick exchange of speed off the ropes, which ends with a Michaels eye poke. He goes for a runner, but Davy hits that with a swank sit-out powerbomb. Michaels goes for a crucifix, but there's a Samoan drop. I mean, we've already seen today, which Vince actually mentions. Bulldog with a surfboard, but his own shoulders are down for a two-count. Sean with some stomps and then a diving punch. He ducks on a backdrop, but Davy hits that vertical suplex of his. And now here comes the company, in the form of Rick Rude. Uh, they exchange a standing switch in the ring and a roll-up, which then Rude turns over, allowing HBK to score a two-count. 
Bulldog's distracted by Rick and Sean axes him to the outside. With the ref tied up, Rick gives Bulldog a kicking right in front of his family. Sean goes up and he hits the double axe handle as Rude continues to work on the Bulldog. A neck snap off the top rope. The heartbreak kid is now in control and he locks on a sleeper. We hit the mat as big Bulldog chants go up. The arm drops two and a half times, but David Boy rallies. A nice side suplex and a crawling cover for a count of two. Sean back with a foot to the face. Bulldog hits the buckle hard and then Sean with an arm bar into a short arm scissor. That looked great, as did Davey lifting that into a one-arm, semi-power bomb, semi-electric chair counter, which is always very impressive. Both men collide off the ropes and we have ourselves a double down. The boos go up as here come Helmsley and China. We then get a light but noticeable We Want Brett chant. Remember that. Sean gets a slingshot and he kicks out at two. Bulldog hits the post on a charge and Sean goes up for an elbow drop, followed by another. He chews up the band but Davey just stays down, which is really quite smart. Sean preps it again to hit it in the corner but Davey boy ducks. He goes for the running power slam but Rude grabs his leg. The ref gets distracted and we head outside. Goes for the running power slam on the mat but he slips and gets his leg caught under the guardrail. Sean actually gives him sweet chin music with Davey's ankle stuck and then the heels actually free him and give him a pedigree. He gets dumped back in and then Sean takes off Davy Boy's knee brace and he throws it towards Diana. Where are the hots? Sean slaps on a figure of four. Bulldog rides in pain and then Hunter and China provide some leverage outside the ref's view. I said, where are the hearts? Davy nearly reverses it but Rude punches him in the face to turn the hold back. More leverage from the bad guys. Bulldog is still trying to fight. Where are the hearts? The crowd are going with Dave, but this isn't going to... Where are the fucking hearts? <laughs> Back to yet more leverage, and this is now... This is now just starting to get a little bit uncomfortable. And as soon as I type that, Earl Hebner actually stops the match. Michaels is the winner, and he is the new European champion. He then takes the mic, and he tells all of us limeys to look at the new Grand Slam winner. He then gets a hole of bottles thrown at him. You know this is the Birmingham NEC because there's a lot of plastic bottles of Carlsberg in there, which probably cost about £7 a pop. <laughs> Diana Smith, my sweetheart, this one is for you. He then puts the leg lock back onto Bulldog and Diana gets in to try to stop it as China pulls her off. Hunter gets the mic and tells David to scream for his country as the Bulldog rides and cries in pain. Brett and Owen Hart amble down to ringside. Hey, no rush, lads. You take as long as you need. Hunter, China and Michaels then sidle off and they celebrate on the ramp. Very, very giddily indeed. He shows no little arrogance as he shucks and jives and does his taunts. The hearts look on from the ring. Brett in particular has quite the face of thunder. Bulldog fights to his feet whilst the commentators put him over as the biggest baby face on God's earth. But it was in a losing battle as he is no longer European champion. And that is how we close the one night only pay-per-view. Dan. Right, I'll, I'll go with the bare bones of the match first. Um, I thought they told a really good story where basically for the first half, Bulldog pummels Michaels. You know, he's using his power, he's hitting him hard, he's hitting him uh, with everything that he's got in his arsenal and he's countering Sean as well. You know, the, the beautiful... Hurricane into a set of power bomb was beautiful. The snow and drop was great. The gorilla press all around the ring 
and with Oham the Jesby trying to go into his face and he falls in behind him. All of that is great. And then they tell the good story of when as soon as Michaels' backup arrives, his he then takes control of the match and eventually the numbers gain you know, enough in his favour to lock on that thicker for leg lock after Bulldog's knee is given out on him to win the match. Now, if in the cold light of day, I think this is a really great match in terms of that. But, and there's a huge, there's huge buts in this, is because there's so much more context involved in this. And unfortunately, I think there's, there's really bad kind of connotations towards this. So the rights and wrongs of this are not for now, but if Bulldog is going to, into the press and dedicating this to his sister, who is terminal cancer, who comes out to the ring with him and just, she looks, you know, so frail, it's really uncomfortable. At the end of the match, seeing him frail around in pain, desperately trying to get out of this with no avail, and it cuts to Diana and Tracy, and they look crestfallen. And it's that is we want to see in wrestling, you know, because wrestling is an escapism, it's an art form, and as much as we want to get emotion in, we don't. I don't want to see real life sadness really creeping into, which you know, for lack of a better term, a fake sporting event. You know, don't, oh, I said the F word there, sorry. Um, and also the fact that, Sean, if you're, do, if you're trying to make yourself the most hateable human being in this company, then well done, sir, you've, you've done so. How can you taunt that family as much as you were in that closing stretch of the match? You know, chucking the knee brace at them, you know, taunting them on the microphone after he's won. It's just such a dick move. That it doesn't, you don't need to do it. You just don't need to do it. And it's, it just really makes the whole thing really unsatisfactory, really unsavory. And then, um, which I did not enjoy. And, and it doesn't, I didn't even enjoy it in a, oh, that bastard, I want to see him get beat up next time. It's like, no, this is just not good television that I'm watching here. And then go back into the logic front. Where the fuck are the hearts? You've got Triple H, you've got Rick Rude, you've got China coming to the ring. And they're out there for a good five to ten minutes. And Bray and Owen are nowhere to be seen. Especially when, you know, Bulldog is getting beaten down three on one outside the ring with his leg trapped in the guardrail and between the, and between the um, kind of the padding outside the ring. And they're nowhere. They're absolutely nowhere. Um, and so that's the logic thing of this match out the window. So it makes them look even stupider that they suddenly turn up five minutes after Bulldog's actually lost the match and he's screaming in pain. It just looks makes the Hart Foundation as a faction look absolutely second rate in comparison to this new breed of Michael's Helmsy Rude in China. And then you go to the next stage. So on paper, the fe- the feeling of having your Babyface lose in their home country to win it back later on is fine. I get the logic in that. That makes business sense. But the fact is, this isn't America. How often do the Feds come over to the UK for shows? Very rarely. And this is probably the second only one that they've done that is quite major. How often are they going to come over to get Bulldog his rematch against Sean? Exactly. Exactly. So... Not only can so much change in six months, Bulldog might slip down the card, Sean might lose his smile again, and, <laughs> you know, other things might, the WCW might come calling for Sean or Bulldog. So, this logic that 
instead of white ball like in six months time you'll get your shot and you'll win your title back in an even bigger event to me doesn't work like I'm all for long term booking but in my opinion this really should have been a short term kind of feel good moment to get the UK crowd and the UK market more importantly really invested in the federation because I, I might be wrong but the WCW market isn't as strong as it in the UK as it is for the Fed so in my opinion, this really should have been a bulldog victory for so many reasons that we that I just mentioned there. Um, and yeah, if this is if this is a power play by Sean, by all accounts, to kind of get one up on his uh, on a friend of his main rival, then smartly played, sir, because you've pulled out a blinder here, and I think he pulled a wall over your eyes, if, especially for Vince. And really, I feel so sorry for the bulldog. I really do. Very, very well said indeed. Where to begin? I'll, let's begin with the match because that's that, that's that's the good, the one saving grace about this. This match was a shade below excellent, which I will take actually. I think Michaels on offense was rowing things back. I still don't think he's actually settled into his heel offense at this particular point. I know he's got his cronies to help him. But I'd still like to see how he is out and out going to work heel going forward. I don't think we've got a massive amount of that here. Obviously, his selling and his bumping, I mean, those are skills which he has par excellence. And at least during the match, and knowing Sean, if people did question him about his behaviour a bit later on, he could turn around and say, ah, yes, but I made him look great during the match, which would be true. Even little things like backdrops, he was selling like death warmed up in the way that only Michaels can. And he does deserve grudging, after what we saw later, credit for that. Bulldog was motivated for this. He put in his best, well, easily, his best in-ring performance since that match against Owen Hart. That superb match they had in Berlin for the European title back in March. He was really feeling this one. It felt very, very real when he was throwing a lot into all of his big moves. When he's really driving down on that vertical suplex. When he's lifting when he's lifting Sean up from his, from his short armistice and bashing him back into that electric chair. I really believed Bulldog's offence. He's one of those people who said it many times, but it's absolutely true. You put him in there with somebody better than him, and he will do everything he can to try and go toe-to-toe with them. Put him in with somebody on his level or below, then results can be variable to be charitable. But put him in with somebody good, he will get everything he possibly can out of his own ability. And for 20 minutes, I really think this match was rocking his own heel takeover spots. But by and large, Bulldog seemed largely in control and in both kayfabe and non-kayfabe terms looked comfortable doing it. Yet as soon as Rude came down, I thought, oh, this match is going to end in a double DQ with the hearts eventually coming down after Helmsley and China. Which I wouldn't have had a problem with. But then I thought, oh, hang on a minute, no, I've got an idea. Why don't we just redo the Canadian Stampede finish? You have here the figure of four spot, which as a spot in the context of the match, worked okay. You know, Michael Zand is there and his team doing their best to try and cheat to win. At that point, as soon as they lock on the figure of four, then you have the hearts coming down. They beat seven bells out of Hunter and Rude. China gets bumped somehow. And in the confusion... Bulldog gets a roll up on Sean and gets a three count that way. This didn't have to end 
with Davy Boy drilling Sean Wood's finisher, pinning, pinning him, cleaning as a whistle and destroying him. Didn't have to happen like that. Probably shouldn't have happened like that. But then, go back to SummerSlam 92. Bulldog won that one with a roll-up flip combination. And everyone still remembers that as one of the greatest moments in not just Bulldog's career, but probably one of the finest moments in the WWF's history. So the precedent is there. And you could turn around and say, ah, yes, but that would have been too predictable. So what? Just because something is predictable doesn't mean it's bad necessarily. If a story is told logically and you know what the ending is going to be because that is the one that makes the most sense, then go with it. You don't have to throw in a swerve for the sake of it. And I think, Dan, I'm afraid to say I think you're absolutely right on this one. This was Michael's, you say, pulling a power play and using that old canard about to try to get his way, saying, oh, the Bulldog get his win further down the line. A, we don't know there's going to be another show in the UK yet. And B, this isn't, the, this isn't the territory system. You can't have a match in which a heel sneaks out of victory and you disappear again around the country doing other stuff with other people, maybe even having your own different character alignments for six or seven months and then come and pick back up where you left off in the old territory again. You can't do that. These two appear on television every week. I mean, Bulldogs are heel every week. It's just people aren't going to pick themselves back up for it. The ending everybody wanted was there, and I'm with you. I was just gutted for Davy Boy. He dedicates this win to his sister, who is legitimately dying of cancer. You, you just have to look at her when she's walking down. It was really hard to watch. I mean, you just have to look at her face when Sean is there, throwing the knee brace and taunting Diana Smith. I mean, come on. That's not heel heat. That's just out-and-out arseholery. You don't need to go there. And you say professional wrestling is just the work, brother, and you shouldn't get worked up about it. The whole point of professional wrestling being a work is that it enables you to tell great stories once and for all. The ending here everybody wanted to see was British Bulldog getting his moment in the sun for the first time in five years as a baby face in front of his own country, everybody cheering him as he's seen off this evil, conniving heel, Shawn Michaels. I mean, there's so many ways I could look at this again. I could talk this for hours. Just one more thing. Obviously, the fans in the arena, they knew after the second Bulldog chance in the figure of four leg lock, they just died because A, they knew the hearts weren't coming down, which was just like stupid, and B, they saw the finish coming. And you also have to think about the people watching this on pay-per-view. I mean, Sky were pushing this event hard pretty much all of September. So I reckon they got a lot of buys from people who would not be, by any stretch of the imagination, hardcore wrestling fans. British Bulldog is probably one of only three or four wrestlers they know, possibly with the exception of Bret Hart, Undertaker and Shawn Michaels. All the other wrestlers they know are now working for another promotion. So they would want to see the one they know win. They want to see the one who was in the Daily Mirror being interviewed win, who was on Live and Kicking on the Saturday morning win. It was right there. Nobody would have complained. It wouldn't have hurt Michael's one iota. He doesn't need to be European champion. But after all the good work that led up to this match, this was just Sean being Sean. And that is not a positive. Yes, he can be a funny guy sometimes. Yes, he's cocky and he knows it. But he, he was just being a plain grade A prick for the sake of winning a belt in a profession which has predetermined finishes which he doesn't need to enhance his career in any way. And he ended up letting down, or giving the impression that somebody had let down his own country 
and his own family. And if there's one thing that pro wrestling should not do in the denouement of a story, because to get what Michael says, this was the end of the story, not the middle part. That is just leaves a horrible, horrible taste. And it's going to affect my mark of this pay-per-view. But Dan, your overall thoughts on what we got for one night only and a score out of 10, please. Right. I think this is one of the most important shows that you need to do for the, when you talk about wrestling for context. Because I think if you actually broke this down into kind of mathematical stats, you'd go, well, there's two matches that are great here, there's three that are really good, and there's, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and you'll give it a really good score. However, because of the context that we've discussed in this main event, um, and, the, and the kind of, you know, hot and cold undercard, this really puts a poor taste in your mouth when you finish watching it. Have you seen the film that's come up recently? It's called The Game, starring Michael Douglas. And I think this is the show that is a kind of mirror image of that film. It's, it's a really good, it's a really good film up until the final 10 minutes when it absolutely comes off the rails so hard that you leave yourself going, huh, what the hell was that? And that's what I kind of feel like coming out of this show. Again, it kind of puts you into context of how important that main event is. Um, so I'm going to give this show a five and a half. It's just over average. Okay. If this show lasted for two hours and 50 minutes of TV time, if everything we've seen and talked about for the previous two hours and 40 minutes had been exactly the same, but the final 10 minutes had been Bulldog defeating Shawn Michaels and our final shots of him, Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Diana, Tracy, his mother and father in the middle of the ring, raising their arms and the crowd cheering. I would have given this at least an extra two marks. And I say, that's if everything else has stayed exactly the same, because that is what people tuned in to see. And yet it was taken from us. It didn't need to be. The rest of the event, as I say, up and down, there were people there who really weren't bothered, who were just in autopilot house show mode. A couple of interesting talking points going forward for, say, the WWF title in a match which was too long, still more than had its moments. You had a fun match between Owen and Vader. So there are things to pick out of this event, yet it could have almost been New Japan G1 up and down the card for the first two hours, 40 minutes, and I would still only give it this score for what we got at the end. So all in all, one night only, I'm going for a disappointing four out of ten. And we come back where we will look at the Raw, which took place on the 22nd of September at Madison Square Garden. A lot happened on this show, it's fair to say, so let's get straight to it. After a very nice video package about the WWF's history with the Garden, we begin with Rocky Maivia against the returning Ahmed Johnson in the Intercontinental title tournament. Because the big Rocky sucks chance during this one. Ahmed somehow manages to bleed from his hand in only a four-minute match, but he gets the clean win with the pearl with a plunge. The glass shatters and we see and hear Austin in the crowd. Someone is going to get their ass whipped tonight because Stone Cold said so. Let's just see about that, shall we? Vince is in the ring with The Undertaker. We learned this morning that the winner of the Hell in a Cell match between he and Sean will face the WWF champion at Survivor Series. For Michaels, the only way for Michaels, the only way out will be over Undertaker's dead body. Sean interrupts and once again accuses the WWF of giving him the shaft. But at Bad Blood, 
Michaels will remain one step ahead of everybody, as always. Undertaker, I will bring the pain. All you've got to do is show up. The LOD go against Farouk and Karma. The rest of the nation hit the ring for a very quick DQ. Ahmed and his bandage try to come to the rescue, but it's the nation who stand tall until Slaughter and Co. make their appearance. Owen, and Cops, has to face Brian Pillman in the Intercontinental Tournament semi-final. Pillman has one arm in a sling and one arm around a PVC-attired Marlena. The sling is due to Brian slipping in the bathtub last night, so he tells us he has to forfeit. Slaughter is back and he exposes it all as a ruse because he throws the mic towards Pillman's broken arm, but Pillman catches it. So the match must happen. When it does, Goldust once again dives in for a DQ. He hit Owen first though, so it's Owen who goes to the final. Right, sit tight. Here we go. Owen Hart tries to dedicate the win to Brett, but Austin jumps in from behind, with a great camera shot on that by the way, and he goes to town. The cops get in the ring and Austin actually threatens to square off with them. Vince McMahon on commentary drops his headset, grabs the mic and hurriedly scampers into the ring. Everybody can understand why you're upset. They can understand you being upset, not being able to compete. They can understand that. But don't break the law. He already did. Uh, uh, look at this. Stone Cold's not going to win this fight with New York City's finest. Don't you understand? Don't you understand why you're not allowed to compete? You can't get that through your head. Don't you know why? Don't you know that you're not physically able to compete? Your doctors say you're not ready. If you compete, you could injure yourself for good. You could, you could wind up paralyzed. That'd be good. And the WWF is not going to stand by and let you do that to yourself. These people don't want you to wind up in a wheelchair. They want to see you compete. Everybody wants to see you compete. But in due time, Steve. In due time. Listen to McMahon. Get the violin. Get a hold of yourself. Telling the truth. Makes all the sense in the world. Hey, you better be talking to those guys over there. I say put him in a slammer. Listen. Don't you know people care 
and the World Wrestling Federation, we care, they care. They care about you, that's all it is. And you just gotta go with it. In other words, in other words, you simply, you gotta work within the system. That's all you gotta do. It's simply work within the system. You know as well as I do that this is what I do for a living. This is all that I do, and can't nobody tell I ain't, I ain't the best in the damn world. Don't even say nothing. Don't say nothing. Sit here and tell me to work within the system. You ain't the one sitting on your ass in the house like I am. But if, it's that, if that's what it takes, to make you or the World Wrestling Federation happy. Hell, I feel like Cool Hand Luke. I'll work within your stupid little system. That's all these people ask. I appreciate the fact that you and the World Wrestling Federation care. And I also appreciate the fact that, hell, you can kiss my ass. He tells the police that he will be able to handle this. Okay. He understands why Austin is upset, but Austin cannot break the law. If Austin competes before he is medically cleared, he could wind up paralysed, and the WWF will not let him do that to himself. Stone Cold has to learn to work within the system. Austin himself speaks now. He says that he's the one who has to sit at home and isn't able to wrestle. He appreciates that Vince and the WWF care, but I also appreciate that, hell, you can kiss my ass. And with that, he stuns Vince McMahon. Holy fuck. A huge Austin chant goes up as he gets handcuffed and led away by New York's finest. He even gives Vince the double bird in the cuffs. After a break, we get to see multiple replays of the stunner, with both JR and Lawler convinced that Austin can and should be fired. Dan, did we really just see what I think we just saw? Brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> um, it's just the perfect um, culmination of, of this story that they've run with Austin for the last few weeks, with him starting at ground zero, stunning JR, um, and then moving on to Slaughter, then moving on to Lawler, and then finally, just when you think that they couldn't pull the trigger any further, they go ahead and do it, and they make him stun the boss. Um, and it's brilliant. It's, it's just fantastic TV. I don't think any, you know, I don't think even Bret Hart when he was 
smashing up announce tables in 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 March could get away with this and make it so just compelling viewing. Um, yeah, just Austin is this perfect anti-authority kind of torn hurricane that is just breezing all through, you know, breezing all the way through the authority figures of this of the federation, and if they do go ahead and still and go, look, Steve, you, we can't fire you because you're frankly making too much money, but we are going to have to reprimand you in some form or fashion, then that is going to make really interesting TV during the time that Austin's out injured, which is crucial because he's such a hot act and they can't let, afford to let him off TV. But also when he comes back, um, whoever it may be, whoever it may be, they choose to be... Um, the guys that go off after Austin, that'd be great if they just wanted to let this long uh, kind of let it go and, and make him go up against wrestlers as a kind of you know a, the old Stone Cold Steve Austin when he was like in uh, June July time, that's fine as well. But the fact is, going forward, Austin's character has just turned up a notch even further than what it was in say July at Canadian Stampede, where it looked like as if the Austin character kind of not peaked, but reached very close to it. He's now got, gone beyond the peak. He's now entered another another atmospheric level in terms of a guy who's just so compelling to watch because it's got the the thing that you need in TV, not just wrestling, but TV. It's, it's like you need to go in and see what he's going to do next. And that is something that the Federation have not had long Against WCW in particular, with the NWO, I think this is. I think this could be a turning point for <laughs> some sort of the, the ratings battle. Surely, this brilliant piece of TV can't have any impact whatsoever, could it? Uh, it must have some positive impact. I sincerely hope so. To think this show itself only pulled in the mid twos and was a full point again behind WCW it beggars belief when you think about it Dan Austin's own C4 vertebrae might very well disagree with this assertion but do you think in any way that the injury has helped him and he's actually got more over because of it short term it probably has I mean long term I don't think any broken neck is is a good thing of course not even if but um in the short term, I don't think you would be able to get this this character development if he was just wrestling every week. It probably would be facing Owen Hart. He would have had a couple of in-ring segments, which would have been entertaining, don't get me wrong, but nowhere near as out-of-the-box thinking as this. But at the same time, it makes perfect sense because he's just pissed off that he can't wrestle because the Federation won't let him. And, you know, you know, you have to work within the system you have to let us kind of look after you, and when you're fine, you'll get it done. And the guy just doesn't want to. He just wants to wrestle, and he wants to kick ass, he wants to take names, and he just doesn't. He's not prepared to let anyone stop him, even the boss. And that makes perfect sense. And it's just, and it's just fantastic because it's compelling TV with a compelling character, and it's it's must watch TV. That's the only thing. That's the best thing that you can say about any sort of television angle. Is must watch, and Austin right now is must watch TV. You cannot, as a viewer, take your eyes off him. 
if you're an authority figure in the storyline, you also cannot take your eyes off him. Now that is a character. It's a character you want to watch. It's a character you do not want to come into contact with. And that is fantastic storytelling in any medium, film, TV, comedy, whatever. And this guy, he's become so real and believable and relatable. Because this is a guy who just wants to do his job. He doesn't want to be sat at home all day, maybe having the occasional walk around his ranch. He wants to be out there doing what he's paid to do, doing what he says, as he said in this interview. He's the best in his opinion in the damn world up, and that's wrestle. And he can't, and he's frustrated, and he's taken out on everybody. He doesn't want to hear platitudes. He doesn't want to hear WWF officials and nice guy commentators saying, oh, Steve, we know it's terrible, but you'll be back soon. We're sure we're all looking forward. He doesn't want to hear that. He just wants to do it. So he's going to take out his frustrations on anybody who is unfortunate enough to get in his way. And I think, you know, as bizarre as it sounds, even though the commentators are always denouncing him on commentary, I think it's that that, in a way, makes him a late 1997 version of a classic babyface. It's relatable. He's, he's sympathetic. Yes, he attacks people with his finisher, but he's doing it for a legitimate reason, and you are feeling sorry for this guy. It isn't just the out-and-out nihilism of a year ago where he was beating up production assistants or referees when he was still being booked as a heel. Here, there's real reason to what he's doing. And I think also what his finisher actually is helped, does help. If his finisher was what it was in WCW, the stun gun, or even so now if his finisher was still the million dollar dream, then I don't think he'd be really getting cheered for this. If it was, say, the million dollar dream was locking Vince McMahon in that big sleeper hold, and I don't think he'd be getting the cheers he did, but his move, stunner, kick to the gut, wow, down, done, over. That's impossible not to cheer for in any match context, let alone as the culmination of a hot segment. So they have almost by accident stumbled across, as you say, absolute must-watch television with this guy. And it's like I said when Austin cut, I've mentioned it so often on this pod, but it's just... It was the starting point for this stuff with Austin. His picture-in-picture promo with Brett in October. I said then, this is somebody who people can really, really sense that, yes, I know people like that, and I'm interested in it because of it. Now they've taken that further, and people actually, not only do they recognise him, to some degree they see themselves in him as well. He's somebody a lot of people want to be. That You're so pissed off that you just want to lash out. We've all been there, and this guy gets to do it, and it is brilliant. And as you say, they built up to it, J.R., Slaughter, Lawler, McMahon, and I think that made it even more impactful. One thing I must mention, I'd be remiss not to say this, Vince McMahon's cell of the stunner. I think the whole I think the whole point is that it knocks you dead. However, it does not send you into the final throes of rigor mortis, which is the only way I can on it. Don, any more to add on that? Uh, I don't know how I talked about Tiger Thing and Sack of Potatoes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. It's like Stone Cold Stunner to a Sack of Potatoes and then but also Wong who I don't know. I don't know. Is, is he meant to be? I don't know if he's meant to be playing dead, and also doesn't, you know, 
also trying to have an antithetic shock going on at the same time. I don't think a, a snapped neck would do that. But anyway. <laughs> uh, I think we just worked out why Vincent Mond doesn't normally get involved in many confrontations. But when it does, it means something. So I am prepared you would think that after years of being the lead announcer of of a, company, a worldwide company, you would know how you would pick up a little bit on how. Uh, anyway, maybe, maybe that's why he's such a crap commentator. He's just not yeah. paying attention at all. So. Because the because the stunner is indeed a very impressive manoeuvre. That's why. Yeah, fantastic <laughs> segment. Go out of your way to see it if you didn't, and just stand and applaud at the WWF having the balls to put this on at the top of their second hour with their head honcho take a finishing move from the hottest guy in the company somebody who just keeps on rolling and I cannot wait to see where this is next if Austin does come back as the doctors are saying at the end of October oh baby it is going to be on and after you've watched this segment you keep on watching and I'm going to tell you why my rivalry between dude love or mankind dude's alter ego balls count anywhere no disqualification oh <laughs> Oh, have mercy, Hunter, and especially your finer China. I know what you must be thinking. Dude, what are you doing back here when you should be out there kicking some heavy-duty booty all over the garden? Well, Hunter, my man, I believe it's time we had a little rap. Ho-ho! Because you see, falls count anywhere. Well, that's not exactly my bag, baby. The pinfalls in the hot dog stand, the pinfalls in the street, the chairs, the tables. It's not exactly a love thing. But I know somebody, daddy, who's bagging indeed it. <laughs> He's my man. He's my main man. You might even say, well, daddy, He's a kind man, <laughs> a kooky type of cat. Let's bring him out right now. Oh, mankind, my main mandible umpire, big man. Oh, oh, you're too slow. Mankind, good to have you at the Love Shack. Hi, dude. Thanks what? for having me here. The pleasure is all mine. You really are eye candy for the chicks, dude. That much I know, Daddy, but you got to tell me about this wacky match. False count anywhere. Dude. As much as I've dreamed about destroying Hunter Hearst Helmsley, I know you have. There's very horrible things I'd like to do to him. I know you can. I know someone who dreams about it even more. Who is it, Manny? Someone who's willing to do even worse things than I am. Oh, no. Are you thinking what I think you are thinking? I think I am thinking what you think I think you're thinking. Can you bring him out, Manny? Here he comes. Where is he? Cactus Jack! Somebody take me! I thought you were dead. Honestly, it may be the darkest day of your life because it's Madison Square Garden and Mrs. Foley's little boy. Bye bye, we all. Bye bye. What in the world, God? Drastic times call for drastic measures. And for a man to have busted on nails. Because Hunter Hearst Helmsley were due to face Dude Love in a false Count Anywhere match. The dude, however, only appears on the Titan Strong. He says that matches like this are not his bag. They are far more so- they are far more suited to his main mandible umpire, Mankind, who also appears on the Titan Strong. Dude interviews him, which is fantastic. However, Mankind says that he knows somebody who can do even worse things to Hunter than he can. 
and we'll get introduced to him on the Tron as well. Oh yes, it's only bloody Cactus Jack. Helmsley, this is the worst night of your life. Just want to say, really good studio work to get all three faces of Foley on the screen at one time. The thing I really did like about it is when Cactus was cutting his mini promo, Mankind and Dude were still interacting in the background. Lovely little touch. Must have taken a long time to film, but uh, it was well worth it. WWF get a lot of things wrong, things they shouldn't get wrong, but their production values, they're pretty much bang on. They deserve a lot of credit for that. And we're going to take that now into the match, which is a Force Cut Anywhere match between Dude Love. No, it's not Dude Love. Booked as Dude Love as Cactus Effin <laughs> Jack. <laughs> did it while I just just before we go on to this one, Dan, did they play this did they play this intro of Cactus Jack right? Because nobody saw it coming. It hadn't been tipped off in the sheets. I don't even think the fans were expecting it, even the smart crowd in MSG, and they introduced him here in this way. After dude cuts a, a kooky promo, do you think it worked? I certainly do. Yes, because I, I don't know about. Sometimes I think there's something about vignettes that if 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 you get a long build up to it, the pop isn't anywhere close to it. I think as, as if it was a shock moment, and you can tell just by the reaction when Jack comes through the curtain that the crowd absolutely are. So glad to see him because they know about ECW. You can hear about the chance that came up after he walked down the ring. Um, but if this was a mankind style series of vignettes, that I've got a split personality, his name is Cactus Jack, and he's coming for you. And he'll debut at Madison Square Garden on the, you know, September the 22nd. It doesn't, it, it's good, it'll be good, but it doesn't feel as special as this debut did with. Valid itself. You, you wouldn't be able to do that with a long build-up of a series of vignettes and whatnot. Um, and yeah, I, and you can tell just by Helmsley and China's reaction as well. If the, if it, if there was a gradual thing, you know, nervous and and a bit probably terrified, but they wouldn't have been that shocked. They even China's there in the background of Helmsley going mental for mouth wide open, going, "Oh God, you know, this is." This isn't what we signed up for. And that, even that sort of thing, it just shows you that this guy is a huge deal, which I don't think he would have been able to get with a longer build-up. Yeah. Just when Cactus Jack appeared on the Titantron, he comes up through the screen. You actually hear the crowd gasp before they cheer. Like, can this be happening? And, oh boy, it was. And yet, I've got to give him credit here. I thought by Hunter and China sold him coming down to the ramp really, really well. Like, Satan himself was coming down for a rock. I mean, the way that Helmsley seems to be acting, it would have been very easy for him to just, you know, shrug his shoulders or fold his arms and just sneer it off. But no, he sold it really well, so I've got to give him credit for that. And so now let's get into the match, which is Cactus Jack's WWF debut in a Force Cat Anywhere match against Hunter Hearst Helmsley. He emerges to a huge deep cheer, and he attacks Triple H straight away with a bin he's brought with him. He chucks it in the ring as the big ECW chant goes up. The match gets exposed and a swinging neck breaker gets a two count. We're in the ring, then we head back out again with the real Cactus clothesline for the first time. We get the bang bang, but China nails Jack, then clotheslines him over the rail. Hunter and Jack then fight in front of and through the classic MSG entrance exit. You know the one. Jack disappears, but only to get a fire extinguisher, which he lets off in Holmesley's face. We're back to the security railing, which actually then collapses. Into the ring, Irish rips to the corner, and Hunter takes his flare corner bump. 
catches the second rope and goes to the elbow, but Hunter moves and Foley lands on the bin. China whips him into the steps and we take a break. We come back with Helmsley holding a broom, which is somewhat out of character, I'd say. He uses it as a weapon and the match slows down a bit now. He then grabs a chair and jabs it into mixed ribs. Low blow by Foley gets him control back and a sunset flip up the up. A sunset flip off the apron to the floor gets a count of two. A big backdrop onto the railing, but China hits him over the head with a chair. However, it has no effects. He grabs the offer, but Helmsley then recovers and he rams both Mick and China into the steps. China takes that one hard. Helmsley with a side suplex on the ramp and he gets a two count. Another set of bin shots to the head, then he disappears to get a snow shovel in September. Hunter then disappears behind the curtain again so he can bring out a table and set it up on top of the ramp as a big buzz goes around the arena. He preps Cactus for a pedigree, but he gets stopped by a low blow. Jack reverses to a pile driver as the table threatens to actually give way, but he does hit it. The three counts is administered before China can recover to break it up. Cactus Jack wins. We then see another great camera shot today, taken, up, taken from above, of him lying amongst the broken bits of the table whilst smiling. Of course. Dan, your thoughts on the match? Really good. Really good classic kind of McFoley brawl. Um, from the various like, swarms of ECW I've seen, it probably was Cactus Jack Light. Obviously, there's no barbed wire, there was no nails, there was no fire. There was no blood. This would be a natural part for him. Which is you know, just bins and files and tables. Oh well. Um, just little things like trying to hit him with a chair and then, it, you know, other than a little daze, but actually doesn't work, just makes it put over that Jack is even more dangerous than mankind in a way. He was, he was a very dangerous, deranged individual regardless. And I don't know what you thought, Roy. Do you think that stair bump that China took was a bit of a botch? Because I don't know if they're willing to give China that much of a big bump just yet. But the crowd absolutely went absolutely ballistic for it. So, you know, it was a very great moment, but I'm not sure if it was planned. Um, uh, maybe, maybe. It, it was, she, she, as I said in my write-up, she took the bump pretty hard. And she, this is some, and let's face it, I don't think anybody since she appeared in March has got anything on her at all. So... Maybe that was the moment. I don't know, but um, no, you could be right. Hmm. Yeah, and also I think Helmsley put in. Uh, say what you want to about his in-ring style not being the most exciting in the Fed, to say the least. But it was really good to see him go toe to toe with a psychotic madman like Jack, um, and get the best of him for you know good portions of the match with with really some really stiff bin shots at the ramp. Um, some good brawling for the crowd, and then, but that table pile driver, perfect. Like the way, just this, that quick snap, brilliant break through the middle. It wasn't like it didn't collapse under the weight of them. Just the perfect finish for the match. It was just great stuff. And I like to think this is the end now of the Foley Helmsley feud. You know, mankind took it to Helmsley. Dude, I've had a couple of matches with him, but it's actually the most dangerous one, Cactus Jack, that finally and and, and decisively pins Helmsley with that part over the table. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a really 
It's been a feud that started really poorly with that King of the Ring match, but it's grown and grown and grown. And if this is the payoff, I'm I'm more than happy with that. I thought it was a really good match. Really good quality TV stuff here. As you say, it was pretty pared down. There wasn't a whole lot of linkage between the spots. It was weapon, weapon, weapon. But I think, especially the uh, the hardcores in MSG, they didn't really want it to be anything else. And I could pick it apart, but here, I don't really want it. I was just so pleased to see Cactus Jack. Just seeing him use a weapon, get hit by a weapon, use a weapon, building to that great finish on free TV. I can't really justifiably ask for any more than that. We got Cactus Jack on WWF TV. And we talked earlier, when we were doing the one night only, about the Dude Love match, where Dude was trying to wrestle. And he came up short. So just little things like that. I would not be surprised at all if somebody like Mick Foley, with the mind for wrestling he has, although it was never made explicit, that's also part of the reason why in kayfabe he turned into Cactus Jack. That's now the only way he's actually going to beat Helmsley. Because he lost the King of the Ring. They had the no finish at Canadian Stampede. He did win at SummerSlam, but that was only in a cage match. And after turning into Jimmy Snooker. And of course he lost in Birmingham one night only. So he had to be Cactus Jack to finally get one over Holmesley. And he did. Yeah, this needs to be the end of this feud. Now this has been certainly the most fun match of the five. That ending was definitive. Pile driver, middle of the table. Cactus, proud of his work. Massive smile in amongst a broken table and broken bodies. Fabulous way to end this feud, which, as you say, has got better as it's gone along. Maybe it will rub off on Helmsley. I hope it does. I don't mean to talk about his in-ring style again. Maybe this needs to be the way be. But The other thing is, Helms is not going to be able to have hardcore matches like this every week. But for now, I am going to give him a rare pass. There's one more thing briefly on this, Dan. The news, so reading Dave Meltzer, seems to say it's going to be a one-shot deal for Cactus. Uh, what character do you think McFoley should adopt going forward, or should he keep all three uh, in mothballs and bring them out as and when? Because it looks like he's going back to being Dude Love. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd go immediately back to Dude Love. Um, but maybe it's sort of a thing where you can do an escalation, or where you have Dude be the, the guy who comes out for weekly TV just for here and there. But if there's anybody who pisses him off, you can bring out the Mankind or the Cactus Jack to to escalate things and to take things up a notch. Um, because, I, I, I don't know, the Mankind character doesn't fit as perfectly for weekly TV as Dude Love. It's a bit more of a variety thing for Love. And then Jack is there for, for special occasions or for when a feud gets serious. Um, but I don't think there should be... Like, we've introduced these three characters so well in that um, promo before Jack's debut, that really, I don't want to see one of them can be put to bed now for for six to twelve months. You know, I, I was quite like to see them kind of um, come out every week or so and just kind of give the crowd a bit more variety, which is something that I think is quite an undervalued commodity. And for it's, it's, it's certainly a way to get three members of the roster onto your thing. As you know, get three wrestlers for the price of one here. Who needs WCW checkbook when you can just give wrestlers multiple personalities? <laughs> There's a lesson in there somewhere, definitely. Yes, given the paucity of their of their roster, 
the fact you've got three people played by the same person who are three who are radically different, yet you can still see a through line between them, who could between the three of them work almost any style of match against any opponent, then you're laughing all the way to only being one ratings point behind WCW. Now that that's not fair on Foley. <laughs> Foley's a master. This that's not his fault. Again, much like the previous stuff, stuff like this deserves a bigger audience, but it's just not getting it at the moment. Yeah. Foley's a master. I I I, I gush over him uncontrollably every month. I don't think the WWF are so lucky to have somebody with this his range of ability. And somebody who can play these three characters, you can switch them whenever you want. Because it does look as though Rightly or wrongly, Dude Love is still going to be the A character, at least for the time being. But you've got Mankind there, you've got Cactus Jack there. And now we know the way they introduce Cactus here. We know what it takes to see Cactus Jack for Mick to delve deep into his psyche to bring out the real madman, the real ass kicker. We know he's there now and there's going to be a palpable buzz every week seeing, oh, he's just done it for Dude now, are we going to see Cactus again? And when you've got the crowd in the palm behind like that, that's over half the job done. So yes, people, start watching WWF television a bit more. And that's a, and that's an order. <laughs> now, there's that reference. I have a few more things to discuss or to, to take you through on the 22nd of September Raw because they, they didn't end it after. They could have ended it after Austin. They could have ended it after Foley, but we've still got a little bit to go through. After all that, Shawn Michaels is back. He wants The Undertaker to bring his dead ass out right here, right now. And the dead man does indeed comply. A battered Helmsley tries to attack from behind, but he fails. Michaels, though, whacks Taker with a chair. Then Day and China and Rude beat Taker down. Some bloke called Bret Hart has the mic. He's the World Wrestling Federation champion or something. Yeah, got me there. He doesn't care who wins at Bad Blood, as he isn't afraid of The Undertaker. And with Shawn Michaels, his cross will pass one day soon. <laughs> oh, dear. God loves to try Brett is in action tonight against Goldust and he wins cleanly with the sharpshooter in an average match. The heartbreak kid dashes down afterwards and gets some shot in on Brett. After a brawl breaks out with HBK's cronies and the foundation, Undertaker turns up to end the show by giving Michaels and Hart a double chokeslam. The last brawl of the month is pre-tape from Albany, New York. Vince introduces HBK, comes to the ring with his entire entourage. Rude speaks first. He offers Vince his protection services because he doesn't pay now, he will pay later. Michaels brushes off any worries about Hell in a Cell because last week we came, we saw, and we kicked the dead man's ass. Hunter grabs the mic. This is the one click that you're never going to break up. Slaughter waddles in to offer Sean good luck for Sunday. Halsey's luck though has run out because tonight he must face The Undertaker. The Foundation appear on the ramp. Brett makes vague threats that Michael is going to suffer for his crimes. HBK and Hunter respond with mock fear. Bulldog faces Vader in the opening contest. Vader is about to win with the bomb but the hearts run in for the DQ. It's a 4-1 attack until the Patriot tries to make the save but he also falls victim to The Foundation. The hearts lay the Maple League flag over the prone bodies and the baby faces. Farouk was reinstated to the IC title tournament after Shamrock's legitimate internal injuries and he's now against Ahmed in the semi-finals. Ahmed smashes Farouk with the ring steps and slugs the referee getting himself disqualified. The nation scrapped with Ahmed, Yellow D and Shamrock after the bell. After another instalment of Paul Pillman's XXX Files, this time he's in bed with tearful Marlena. 
He refuses to fight Dude Love at Bad Blood unless Goldust is handcuffed to the ring post. Dustin will have to get his own pair though because Brian and Marlene are pretty busy. The Sultan vs Goldust is next. Dude joins us on commentary and we learn that if the dude is victorious over the loose cannon, Goldust will have it and anything goes match with Pillman at Bad Blood. He wins this one with a bulldog. Austin is here with a mic and he calls Vince into the ring. McMahon says you're either a certifiable lunatic or you just don't give a damn. Frankly, I don't give a damn either. Austin gets given three options. Either produce a doctor's note declaring he's fit to wrestle, compete in the ring but with low liability on the WWF whatsoever. If you get hurt then it's your problem. Or three, I've got to do what I've got to do in terms of termination. Steve brushes off all those options in his now standard verbal manner. Vince is spared a stunner this time but does get the old double bird. The headbangers defend the goal tag belts against Bariquas, Jesus and Jose. This match exists in name only until the Godwins interfere in yet another disqualification. Owen Hart is out for an interview. He's surrounded by the riot squad and is wearing a t-shirt emblazoned with the following slogan, Owen 316, I just broke your neck. He'll regain the IC title at Bad Blood. As for Austin, it's up to Vince to get him out of the World Wrestling Federation. Owen then stands on the buckles to taunt the crowd, but a member of the squad reveals himself to be Stone Cold Steve Austin. Kick, wham, stunner, and escape through the crowd. Our main event is The Undertaker against Helmsley. Bret and Bulldog take out the dead man on the ram until they get chased off by Vader and the Patriot. Michaels and co then attack Taker. When the match officially starts, Undertaker is about to tombstone Hunter, but Rude is in with a briefcase for our millionth DQ tonight. The heels then dump Undertaker in a body bag. We get an unintentionally comical zombie sit-up with Undertaker sitting in the bag, which he then breaks. He chases the heels away and Michaels tries to escape through the curtain, but a strange red light stops him. He settles for climbing up the Titan Tron while Helmsley eats a tombstone. Uh, one more thing to discuss before we wrap it up for the month, and that is the only game in town really next week will be taking place. Bad Blood, again, as it has been so often this year for the WWF, the pay-per-view will be the first big TV event of the month, taking place on October the 5th. Other matches have been announced on the card. The aforementioned worthless flag match between Bretton Bulldog and Vader and Patriot. What a waste. And the, you'd never guess Jim Cornette was booking this Dude Love versus Brian Pillman match in which Goldust will be handcuffed to the ring post because, yep, we're doing that again. And if the handcuffs weren't enough to tell you who was booking this, there's an extra stipulation involved too. And that is if Dude Love wins the match, then Goldust gets a, I believe it's going to be a no-holds-barred match with Pillman. But yet they are the, they are the dressing on the salad main course and the desserts. That is the main, will be the main event between Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker after their 20-minute angle at Ground Zero. I say, listen to, listen to part one of this particular show for start setting that one a bit more, but it never really felt like a match. But I'd like to think this one will. It's going to be taking place in a huge cage, which is called either Hell in a Cell or Hell in the Cell, depending on who you talk to. And of course, we all tune into wrestling podcasts to discuss between whether we should use the indefinite and the definite articles. Let's go with Hell in the Cell for now. I think that's right. On the 29th of September Raw, we got to see a shot of the cage actually being constructed. And judging by that, it looks like it's going to be massive. It's going to be way bigger than the usual 15-foot-high steel cage. 
you know, the 15 foot high steel cage that everybody can reach by standing on the mats. This one looks like it's going to be legitimately monumental. I think there's going to be a full roof on it. A lot of people are talking about war games. I think you need to be looking more at the WCW Thunder Cage. There's going to be a space, I believe, between where the cage sits and the ring side. So they'll be able to brawl on the mats and by the steps. I think there's going to be a locked door involved and I say a huge roof. The ultimate cage match. I'm glad they're not just doing a standard cage match. Uh, Dan. Is this match built for Michaels to win in slightly screwy circumstances to go on and face Bret Hart after taking 20 minutes of insane bumps? Uh, yes, I believe so. Uh, thanks for the wrap up, Roy. We'll see you in a Survivor Series, basically. Uh, look, I, I don't mind. I think that finish makes sense, but. It, I would quite happily watch the whole match play out if we get to see The Undertaker pummel Shawn Michaels um, for 20-25 minutes because I'll be honest Bret Hart has been the main event heel for, for the Federation for seven months now and he hasn't garnered anywhere close to the amount of punchability that Shawn Michaels has had for the last month since he's been a heel um, so in that case I, I if it does mean we get Bret Hart Shawn Michaels, then it has to be a, a Michaels victory over Undertaker. If it means that Taker gets to beat the piss out of him for 20-25 minutes, I will happily take that. Um, and that's testament to Shawn's heel work. But I'm, you know, sometimes you just have to kind of let yourself get immersed in these storylines. Because I, I'll be honest, I have been a Shawn Michaels fan for a long for a long time in 1996. I can't believe how much I hate this guy's guts after all the antics that he's been pulling throughout the month of September, if I'm being honest with you. So bring on this match. I'm looking forward to it. If it means we get a screw finish, then so be it. But if it means we get Taker punishing him for 25 minutes, I'll happily take it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they're right what they say after all wins and losses don't matter. Yeah, Michael's been blabbing the piss beating out of him for twenty five minutes and sneaking out the win. This trade off scar, I think that one's fairly acceptable. And I actually think it is what we're gonna get as well. Undertaker is gonna be it doesn't always seem like the character suited this, but I think he's gonna get the old baby face banana skin somehow. Some way the I don't know, you have something like throwing this out there, Helmsley's been hiding under the ring and he manages to sneak or something like that. It isn't going to end 50-50 toe-to-toe Sean hits switch of music on Undertaker gets the win. It's not going to happen that way. Undertaker's going to have to effectively come up short because somebody's going to make sure he comes up short. And I think that's the way to go. Like I said earlier, he doesn't need to win this match. He doesn't need to be the WWF champion again for a long time. We've got to get to Sean Brett somehow. Why not do it this way? I'm just fascinated to see how they actually use the cage because I've grown quite tired of the blue bar cage and I don't like, as I've said before, I'm not a fan of escape rules cage matches. Winning a match, which is supposed to be the ultimate culmination of a feud, by climbing or running away from your opponent, that's not a circle I can square. You win decisively. You pin them one, two, three. You make them submit. 
And if I'm reading this correctly, this match is going to lend itself to that. I mean, Michaels is going to bump like an absolute madman. I have no doubt that he'll be flinging himself around in there, making everything look devastating. Because for all his twattishness this month, especially what we saw in Birmingham, when the bell rings, again, it's, it still sticks in my craw to say it these days, but there's no better performer in the world than Michaels. And he is going to want to absolutely steal this show because that's what he does. And he's going to. He's got already, I reckon, some amazing things up his sleeve. I'm taking this really nice in, in non kayfabe context. He just needs to try to hang with him and just let Michaels bounce around off him. And I think that's what it's going to be. Michaels wins somehow. And uh, he goes on to face Brett. There's one more thing on their, on the B pay-per-views down that they built up this match in a big way. They're bringing out a first time ever stipulation match, a whole new variation on a theme, which I think is great. Do you think that going forward, this is the sort of thing they need to do to sell their B grade pay-per-views? Because they're now all going to be three hours, which I think is too long for these shows. A lot of events are going to blend into being much of a muchness and people are going to start skipping them especially as they're now going up to $30 a month, unless they have some sort of real special attraction. Do you think it's the way they should go more regularly? Or are they in danger of burning themselves out of gimmick matches if they do that? I was going to say, I think that if you if you go to the world too often, you probably end up with more mud than water. You know, And look, this, this, this gimmick sounds good. This gimmick is sounds simple enough that you can understand it, but have that spectacle that it brings something to the table. But let's not get a fucking doomsday cage match out of here from WCW style, you know, thing sort of thing. Oh, God. That was just <laughs> one thing. That was just one thing that they tried to, you know, to, uh, in 12 months. If, if the Fed have got to do this maybe eight times in a year, the, the hit rate is going to be so slow. And, and ultimately, if you, have more, if you have more misses than hits, you're going to piss off your audience. Um, so in my opinion it's just simple you just build feuds that people want to see and you know and have that attraction that people want to see even like the small in your houses last year like the matches themselves like the main events were good you know Michaels and Diesel was good Michaels and Mankind was good it's just just didn't have the the storylines to back them up so if, if I think that have a gimmick match if, you, if you've got a good idea. Don't feel compelled to do it. What you need to focus on is having the storylines and the fuse to make people care and let the matches take care of themselves. That's kind of what wrestling should be, in my opinion, but uh, I don't want to... Okay, I'll get my armchair again, but uh, yeah, um, if I was them, I'd show restraint, even though the temptation would be to go all out on these B-shows to you know bump up some sort of interest, but that's just my opinion anyway. Wrestler A doesn't like Wrestler B. They want to fight each other. People want to see them fight. People will pay to watch them fight. It need not be more complicated than that. If a feud is built well, which is Michael's Undertaker one, has been, they've been going at it a lot ever since ever since SummerSlam. A super duper cage match like this is absolutely the place to go. It doesn't feel for me at all like we're just having a gimmick match here for the sake of it. But if this one proves to be a success would take a place on a show which, unlike Mania or SummerSlam or even Survivor Series, King of the Ring perhaps doesn't just sell itself on the on the proviso of being an A show. Don't 
consider that yes, this was this was a success. We need to pad out our shows in December or February and April with gimmicks left, right, and centre. Let's just see how this one goes. Maybe even keep it in reserve for another blood feud two or three years down the line. So um, just be in danger of getting carried away. Just build compelling, simple feuds that people simple up and down matches, no bells and whistles that people will want to pay thirty dollars a month to see. It's all you need to do. I think. I think Ground Zero, as I say, was, my opinion, was not a success of an event, but I'd like to think that they will look at that, see what worked, what didn't, keep the two separate and work forward, because if they're going to have three hours of pay-per-view every single month, they need to know how to fill them. At the same time, they can't just panic and just try and fill them with cheap thrills, because as you said, they'll burn themselves out very quickly. But I'm really looking forward to this Undertaker Michaels match. It's been built really well and Michaels is going to make sure at least that something big is going to happen so tune in next month to find out what happens there but that brings us to an end of our very long WWF 2 shows this month Dan thank you for sticking with me throughout this one it has been a pleasure a pleasure as always Rory thanks for having me you can be found on the social medias I can at Daniel886 Excellent. I am also on Twitter. I am RawsDM on there, R-O-R-S-D-M. At time of recording, I'm not on there all that often, though, but if you want to see live tweet along with me for 1984 editions of Top of the Pops, when they are shown at BBC4 on a Thursday and Friday evening at half past seven, and frankly, why wouldn't you, then that is the place to go. We are the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast, and we can be found on Twitter at Wrestling20YRS. We are also on the Facebooks as well. We have a website, www.wrestling20yrs.com. All sorts of material on there, taking in our entire timeline, going all the way back to August 1993. Uh, in a few days' time after recording, my own review of One Night Only should be up there. Lose yourself in that website. Loads and loads of stuff on there. Our podcasts are available on iTunes. It's been a long time since we had a review on there, so pop along. Five stars if you please. Tell them I sent you. We're also available on all your other podcatcher apps, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever you want to call it. We all, I also found out today we're on one which is actually called Podcast Player. <laughs> the simple ones are the best. And a plug for Patreon for $5 a month to say thank you for the work we do here on the podcast. Watching Tiger Ali sing matches for your benefit, dear listener. As I say, $5 is a small <laughs> price to pay for that one. And if you do that, we in return for Sacred Tuesday, we will make sure that you get all the monthly shows as soon as they are edited, whenever they can be. For example, I'm recording this now on a Saturday afternoon. I've got this month's ECW show in my email inbox on Sunday. So, um, yeah, patreon.com forward slash wrestling20yrs. Uh, I'm pretty sure that wraps up all the plugs. Uh, just as another praise again of all the shows this month, in case you missed any. Our Volume 1 show is ECW, looking at four brawl. So our WWF show, split into two parts. Uh, our Part 1 looked at Ground Zero and the first two weeks of WWF television in September, if you missed that one. And our Volume 3 ECW show, looking at the As Good As It Gets live event. But I've been Rory McNamara. Thank you very much for listening this month. And from Dan Welling, so long, everybody. Bye.